hear that? Amazing. Don't forget now. Bangly bang. Here it comes. He was early on the Empire Podcast this week. We're live at King Face London for a 400th episode! Oh, yes. Uh, who was early? Kobe, man. Alarming insight into your lovemaking technique there, I think. <laughs> anyway, hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, not just any regular old edition of the Empire Podcast. Oh, no, 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 no. In case you weren't listening to my intro, or in case my voice genuinely went so high dogs couldn't hear it at the end, I went, 400! Uh, this is the 400th episode of the Empire Podcast. Oh, yes, you may applaud that. Yep. I can't believe it either. 400 episodes of the show that many people have described as fucking hell, is that still on? You'd think they would have given up the ghost a long time ago, but no, we are still here. And we've been doing this for eight years. Eight years. You don't get that for murder. Eight years. We've been doing this since 2012, which came out confusingly in 2009. What the hell's been going on? Anyway, so much has happened in the time since we started doing the Empire podcast. I had hair. <sighs> Have you tried the Belgravia Hair Clinic, Chris? Yes, he said I was a lost cause now. Fuck off. What else has happened? Britain was still in the European Union. Uh, how does that get more of an all than my hair loss? I have to live with this every day. The President of the United States was not an insane man who wore some sort of tribble on his head. That's, that's new. Liverpool Football Club were languishing near the lower reaches of the upper reaches of the Premier League, not as they are now, streaking 22 points clear on the way to the first title in 30 years. Oh yes, you may whoop that all you like. Uh, what else? Let me see. Nazis! In 2012, there were no Nazis! Now there's Nazis everywhere! How are you? What else? Uh, if you wanted to watch a film back in 2012, you had to uh, go into a kinema. You had a darkened room and pay a strange old man who smelled of Werther's originals. You had to pay him and he would throw some light at a screen and that's how you watched a film. Nowadays, you just sit in a sofa and Netflix fart content into your mouth. <laughs> That's progress. That is absolute progress. What else has happened? 2012, Marvel movies were still considered to be cinema. <laughs> Pretty huge. And uh, Ben Travis hadn't even been born yet. <laughs> Bless him. Uh, but that's not all that's changed, of course. The, uh, the lineup, the personnel on the Emperor podcast has changed as well. There have been some comings and goings, mainly goings, in fact. Ali Plum left the show and became hugely successful in his own right. Phil Dissemblian left the show and became hugely successful in his own right. I <laughs> stayed here and I'm still doing this eight years on, but don't worry because I'm not doing this alone. I have some colleagues of such lethal cunning 
to do it with me. The podcast, not, not sex. They're not going to do sex with me. Believe me, I have asked. Uh, so please welcome some other people whose horrendous life choices have brought them to this very, very point today. First up is a woman who, earlier backstage, we were chatting and she said, Chris, when you bring me out, can you introduce me as fucking Joker? I fucking hate that film. <laughs> Fuck off, Joker. Joker can go fucking self. So naturally, I've decided to oblige you. Please welcome our geek queen, the clown princess of crime, <laughs> and the founder, secretary, and treasurer of the Joker fan club, Helen O'Hara! Joker. I hate the Joker. He's a oh my God. Man. He's got a stupid face. He, he can fuck off. Yep. Uh, next up, Terry White, our esteemed editor and chief and leader, was meant to be here tonight, but due to being heavily pregnant, I mean, I mean, honestly, there was a chance a baby might have slingshotted across the stage <laughs> at one point. So uh, she has stood down. Luckily, we have replaced a woman about to give birth with someone who was recently given birth to. Uh, he is smothered in placenta. No. And he's up late, way past his bedtime. And he's getting a little grumpy, isn't he? So, will you please give a warm, aww, for Ben Travis, everybody. Ben Travis. Why are you running late, Chris? Well, it took 45 minutes on my intro. Um, anyway, last but very much least, James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. James Dyer! Dreadful twat. I know you are, but what am I? Good comeback. Write that down. Okay, so what we usually do on the live shows, if you've ever been to one of these before, we invert the normal order of proceedings and we finish with the listener questions. That's you guys, you're the listeners or the audience in this case. Uh, but today, I'm gonna switch it back again. So we're gonna start with listener questions. So if there's anything you wanna ask the panel, you have about 20 minutes, 20 minutes to ask us stuff. A hand has immediately tentatively risen at the back do do we have a, do okay. we have can I leave? Is, is the question. <laughs> At what point can I leave? Uh, we have Roby microphones. Here is one. Uh, oh, here he comes, the Roby mic guy. Hello. Yes, good evening. Hello, yeah. good evening. If you could recast any movie entirely, uh -huh. of, uh, entirely with Muppets, save for one human actor, mm. what would it be? So I'm thinking, for example, Avengers, but just Samuel L. Jackson remains as Nick Fury. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, have, I have so many questions. <laughs> the first of which is, technically speaking, Two Girls, One Cup, a movie. Oh. I just want to... Oh, Chris. No, Chris. Whoever said yes, get out. <laughs> I mean, it's got a great plot. Shut up. Uh, I don't know. Did we answer this before, or have I just read somebody else answering it on Twitter who said, uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross, apart from Alec Baldwin? <laughs> oh, yes. Which oh, is... my God, that'd be the most amazing thing ever. That would be Can pretty imagine? good. It would be pretty good. Always be closing. 
fuck you, that's my name, to, uh, to Kermit. Because <laughs> Kermit would be the best Shelly the Machine Levine, wouldn't mm. he? He's got that already sad sack, Jack Lemony face. Yeah. You know, he's got the, uh, the eyes, which are very Jack Lemony, actually. But uh, who would be the Spacey character? That's uh, what I immediately go to. No. Which is the dodgiest Muppet? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm doc, pleased Dr. to say Teeth, there, isn't it, there think? are no dodgy Muppets. No, there's definitely one. I mean, the, the Count has wow. got to be dodgy, right? Mm-hmm. He's killed before. He just counts. He'll kill again. Okay. One. Uh, uh, uh. Two, uh, two uh, victims. Uh, uh, uh. Three victims. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, I think uh, that's. Uh-huh. He's he's killed before. He's got blood in his hands. You want something where your central character is losing it in some way, and part of their complete mental degradation is seeing everybody else as Muppets. So maybe Joker, <laughs> Joker, and the only human in it. <laughs> Arthur Fleck is with us, everyone. Oh um, he can leave now. <laughs> <laughs> you could probably do that. You could probably just superimpose them over the other characters. Just see, green screen them, stick them in front of the... Uh, I mean, there are... On behalf of the Muppets, I'd just on. like to say no. <laughs> yeah. I think Avatar with just Stephen Lang. (laughs) Just killing the shit out of them. Don't say it too loud. James Cameron's only just finished shooting. He spent years. There's still time. How about- They all look like Cookie Monster. How about Downton Abbey apart from Maggie Smith? Let's have another question, shall we? Is it on? Yay! Hello. Now, I have sent this to you a couple of times before and I think you've refused to answer it on the podcast. Uh This bodes well. <laughs> there's a line in Die Hard where one of the, there's a TV segment and they're discussing the terrorist situation going on at the Nakatomi Plaza room. Oh, one of the, one of the guys says, it's like the Helsinki syndrome. Oh. And then somebody else says, as in Helsinki, Sweden. And he says, no, Finland. But obviously it's actually the Stockholm syndrome. I've yes. never got that line and I want one of you to explain it to me, please. <laughs> In addition to that, in, in Lethal Weapon 3, there's a joke for Rene Russo's character. I'm, I'm going to stop you there, because there's a reason we haven't answered this question, pal. <laughs> no, please, do continue. Well, actually, Rene Russo's character says, close rigs, close as a lingerie shop with no front window. He says, I don't get it, and she never fucking explains it to him. <laughs> the whole point of Lethal Weapon 4, I was hoping, was to explain that joke, and I was bitterly disappointed. I'm wondering if there are any other lines of dialogue in films that confu- have always confused you, in a similar vein, or if you can explain either of those things to me, please. Well, I, I assume the joke in Die Hard is just that the newsreaders are idiots and don't know geography or Stockholm Syndrome. I can answer this question. Um, oh. Of course you can. <laughs> I knew it was useful one day. I did, yeah, thank you. It's the reason I've been here, hanging around for the last few years. Uh, I actually spoke to both the screenwriters of Die Hard, and I asked this question to both of them, and they both looked at me ever so slightly blankly. Uh, I was also given the shooting script of this, and it is correct in the shooting script. So something horrific happened on the day, <laughs> and no one really knows. John McTiernan just was like, I, I don't know. And Steve D'Souza was like, yeah, you're right. It is Stockholm Syndrome. I'm pretty sure I wrote Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know why the guy said Helsinki Syndrome. We never discussed it in the room, but apparently no one even noticed either, so... Perhaps um, he had Stockholm Syndrome with someone that, who grew up in Helsinki, and he just perhaps. really, really loves yeah. Helsinki. 
Yeah, Maybe surely filmmaking. Thank you. I just thought he was trying to be funny. It's no, funny. It's, it's not. It's it was a genuinely like they're all baffled by it. It huh. wasn't intentional. Ah. It, yeah, it's you, you've fun. unburdened me there. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. And what was the? Okay, let's remind me of the Rene Russo. Joke. She. Uh, he says that was close, and she says close, Riggs. Close as a lingerie shop with no front window. And later on, when they're in a thing with a big dog, he goes, I don't get it. She goes, it's a dog, Riggs, it's a big fucking dog. And he goes, no, 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 I don't get close as a lingerie shop with no front window. And she says, I'll tell you later, and doesn't. doesn't. Have you tattooed the script on your body? Like memento. Um, <laughs> Imagine tattooing the script from Lethal Weapon 3 on your body. Like, not Lethal Weapon 2, not the really oh, great what? one, but you know, anyway. Uh, I don't understand that. Uh, I imagine. I imagine the, the joke the, is that it doesn't quite work. I imagine he was trying for something, couldn't quite make it work, and then left it in as a joke that doesn't work. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> let's go with that. Uh, Thank you. Do you have any lines of dialogue that you've uh, misunderstood or that you don't quite understand? So many. McClunky. <laughs> Who the fuck knows what that was about? McClunky. I believe it's Hutties for something like you're going to die, isn't it? Because um, it's if you it's in I think you'll find that if you go to the Phantom Menace you'll find that uh, Sebulba says it at one point and it's subtitled. That's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know. Keeping on the Star Wars line, uh, you know that's that thing where like when you're a kid because all kids are fucking stupid, and uh, when you're a kid you hear something and you just accept it's true and you believe it all your life, and then as an adult you find yourself repeating something and as the words come out of your mouth you realise you sound like a moron. Yeah. Uh, and I think I mentioned this in the podcast before. This happened it's, in the office. Yeah. When I was just like, I said something. This was just about like God. It was about 15 years ago. I said, you know that line in Star Wars, like. It's like millions of oysters cried out in terror and were suddenly silent. I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. Oysters don't even have vocal cords. And Helen was like, um, D- James, <laughs> I don't know how to put this, but yeah. Shit. Yeah. What is the line, James, for people who don't know? For millions of voices. 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 Which yeah. makes so voices. much more sense. Because voices typically cry out in yeah, terror. And not, whereas not oysters. So much oysters. Not so much. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, but maybe Aldera. I don't know. I'm just trying to explain it. Aldera may have been. We don't know at that time a watery planet, and it might have been home to millions of oysters. <laughs> yeah, and who knows that what you do? That were terribly perceptive. Yeah, really it's perceptive Wars. oysters. Anything's possible. Anything is possible. Uh, space oysters are not the same as real oysters. And if there's any takeaway from the show tonight, uh, it's that. Uh, let me see. Who else? Yes, gentleman in the third row. He's written something down. Oh God. We're in trouble. When you get to my age, Chris, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, um, I woke up this morning with a dodgy knee, I know. <laughs> Believe me. Um, I was listening to your 100 Great Films uh, podcast on the way in here today. Um, some of which I agreed with, others were sort of meh. Us too. Another, others were sort of violently uh, opposed to. Mm, um, I just interject here, James, you're absolutely right about Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> Thank you. There are, there are um, films that you all agree on as great, uh, but somewhere you almost have violent disagreement. I shall mention no joker. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're faced with, uh, say, a three to one, um, do you reevaluate your views? and try and see what you've missed and that others saw, or do just dig in and uh, (laughs) take what might be described as a commodian stance of I'm right? Mm. Helen, do you want to take this one? (laughs) (laughs) What? Just You do it too. Molly's game. Um, I'm not doing... There's an element of discussing things and we sometimes do talk each other around to a degree. Um, We don't 
necessarily talk each other around that much. Um, and there have been famous disagreements in the office. Obviously, one recently, um, actually over La La Land as well in my head. Uh, oh, <laughs> I was involved in one over the fountain. <laughs> yeah, look, it happens a bit, yeah. But Whenever Helen comes into the office, essentially, is what we're saying. What? I'm a peacemaker. Um, well, the but no, it's a good one. Just, yeah. <laughs> but no, there's, there's been lots of things that we've disagreed on, um, and it does happen fairly frequently, actually. And lots of things where individuals in the office will disagree with yeah. whoever wrote the review in the office. It, but it's it, just really sad when it's Ben. Like, <laughs> so when we all came out of Rise of Skywalker and Ben was like, yippee! Like Anakin. <laughs> I had a great we time at like, the Star Wars. Um, and yeah, if you've been listening for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that James literally had to revert to a cave of solitude um, for several days after the Rise of Skywalker screening just to collect his thoughts. And I was saying to him, I'd seen it, uh, I saw it at the press screening and then mm -hmm. saw it two nights later on opening night. Um, and I enjoyed it even more second time around. I just had a great time with it, flaws and all. Um, and I said to James, go for round two, you'll be fine. Go for round two, you'll enjoy it. You left for Christmas, and I texted you over Christmas saying, how was it? Did you like it on a second viewing? And I'm pretty sure you texted back one line saying, it was worse, and it ruined my Christmas. <laughs> it was. It did. <laughs> yeah. So uh, has anyone ever been talked around? Have you ever, you know, whenever I'm banging on in the office about some Adam Sandler nonsense, do you ever get... <laughs> Nobody likes murder mystery. <laughs> that is not true. Nobody Helen. likes it murder mystery. It's the most viewed movie, I believe, in history. Uh, and murder mystery two is out soon. Uh, very excited about that. But you know, do you, are you ever tempted to say revisit? Like James, uh, I don't even know why I'm starting with you because you're famously anti-comedy. But when I'm banging on about Anchorman, no. are you tempted to revisit Anchorman? Absolutely not. I've seen Anchorman several times. I've smiled. Why have you seen it several times? Hard to say. <laughs> I remember it came out. It's, in close proximity to Dodgeball that I genuinely found funny. Mm. And then I watched Anchorman and I was like, this is objectively a film without a script where people are just saying whatever comes into their head. I'm like, this, this I mean, that's like being on this podcast. I just don't, I just, <laughs> it's just not funny. It's the nightmare, oh my God. It is. I'm in a glass yeah. case of emotion. <laughs> oh man. He said with the stoniest face <laughs> possible. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> you really are, you Be kick Baxter off a bridge on a daily basis. I feel like you and Nick talk each other around sometimes. Do we? I feel like you do. In, uh, well, we talked you around on John Wick, didn't we? You, oh, that's yeah. a very good question. That was a yeah, big that's turnaround. a very good point. Yeah. You came out of that, we're like, the equalizer's amazing, John Wick. No one will ever watch that. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's establish a few facts here. Uh, I don't believe I said the equalizer is amazing. I think I said super amazing. <laughs> He kills people in a B&Q at the end. He it's does. incredible. He does a thing where he goes into sort of weird Denzel bullet time and he yeah. kills all the dudes and it's incredible because uh, I love uh, violence. Um, but also, but John Wick, I, I watched John Wick and I just thought it was a bit of a kind of taken knockoff kind of thing. And I could recognize it was quite stylish, but now I put it down to being jet lagged because I saw it in New York. And, um, uh, and then I saw it again, and the scales fell from my eyes, and uh, I wound up on the set of John Wick 3 as a result, <laughs> because I became evangelical about the series, and uh, still am. Although I sense that the air went out the balloon a little bit with Wick 3. A little bit. I feel that. Do you not feel that? No, I don't feel that. It was the biggest hit. Hmm. But I don't know how many people are talking about it now. It, I think it's tied with two for my favorite of the three. 
I prefer the later two. I like all the mad mythology bullshit. Like, the stupider and weirder it gets, the more I'm into it, which I don't mm. know what that says about me, but... No, I'm with you. I think that's the best part of it. Though I liked that it was all hinted at in the first mm. one. I, mm. I feel the more you pull back the curtain, almost the less yeah. good it is. So actually, the third one re- revealed more than I wanted it to. The first one's my favourite. You know, when you're in a tent in the desert, I was like, have we gone too far? No. <laughs> But it is tricky. It's tricky whenever you you, uh, you 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 have a busy lifestyle and there's loads and loads of films fine for your attention. It's very hard to give that attention to a film you didn't like in the first place. Mm. So perhaps that's our lesson for 2020. If you take anything away from this podcast tonight, <laughs> it's that it was voices, not oysters, uh, and that space oysters are different from real oysters, and that perhaps the real magic was within us all along. I forgot what the point was, but anyway, that's basically the point. I think we've got time for one. Oh, fuck. Helen, choose someone. Um, uh, this man in the light blue shirt with his hand up. That's okay. Why. Apologies to everybody else. This was prearranged. My sincere apologies to everyone else. <laughs> Helen, thank you very much for making us actually care about a corporate law film. I mean, I do criminal <laughs> law and I didn't care about corporate law, but now I do. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> My work here is done. On to the actual question. Uh, at Empire, the phrase is always, it's always Christmas Eve. Mm. It's confusing. To negatively, um, where, when you've been on set, what's the biggest sort of terrible Christmas day that you've had after it always being Christmas Eve? Or, to skew positively, uh, what's the best Christmas day after having a really disappointing Christmas Eve? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> well, see, the, the thing is, I'm actually not going to say the, the, the most disappointing ones we've been on set of because they have been little small films made on budgets of like tens of thousands of pounds or something, and it, they just didn't work. And, and the whole world was essentially against them, so I'm not going to pile on. But there, there have been some films I was on set of that barely got any kind of release in the end, um, and maybe were not great. Um, but again, it's kind of not their fault. Um, in terms of ones that were a delightful surprise, or at least delightfully lived up to one's hopes for them, um, I was really, really stressed about Wonder Woman. I went on set of that, I loved everything I saw, but then there were all these rumors that, oh, there was trouble, it wasn't that good. There, were just, there was a lot of kind of negativity before it came out. Mm-hmm. And so actually going to see it and actually seeing that it was Good was just a huge relief. I thought that I'd was actually heard fantastic. the word unwatchable from a very knowledgeable source in regards to Wonder Woman, and then I saw it and I was like, not only is it watchable, it's pretty damned awesome. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So so stuff like that. Um, I don't know what else. Uh, Captain America turned out quite well. <laughs> and that's all down noticed. to you, isn't it, Helen? It's you, very you much all down to me. You went on with some notes. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about a, a variation on this question the other day, uh, and we were talking about it a little bit in the office. But what's the most, I'm sorry, I'm asking the questions now. It's a question from this guy here, thank you. What's the most iconic moment that you've been on set for? Have you ever been on set for something that stands out as a piece of film history? Well, on that one... Okay, next question. (laughs) On that one, it was literally Gal Gadot going over the top that I saw. So that was pretty freaking awesome. Um, On 300, it was a lot of naked men. So that was... (laughs) That was a supernatural feature-length special. (laughs) Was that 300 men, one cup? No, come on! Come come on, guys! Come on! It's important we establish a level. Not that level. Just Just saying. saying. (laughs) What was it? (laughs) <laughs> anyway, this bit will be cut out, so I'll get yeah, you know, probably best. Ticked it off in your little bingo sheets. It's too late now, you've lost. Um, Jimbo, yeah, yeah, what are we, you've been on stuff. <laughs> Once or twice. Um, 
Weirdly, I think this kind of answers both your question and your question. I was on set of Terminator Dark Fate. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I liked it, okay? Yeah, I know. And um, <laughs> there was a bit when, when, when Arnold and then the Hamilton walked on, and I was like, you know, regardless of how this film may turn out, uh, that was kind of cool. Just to see those two in character together on set was pretty exciting. Uh, I must admit, I did revert to kind of schoolboy mode at that mm. bit. That was pretty cool. And then, you know, the other stuff happened. <laughs> Benny boy. I mean, the only thing that I can talk about that I've been on set on, because uh, most of them haven't come out yet. We haven't done stuff yet. Mm. Um, but the main one uh, from last year, Shazam. I was on set of Shazam. And at that point, Wonder Woman had come out and been, yeah, pretty damn great. But the rest of the DC output had maybe not been so great. Um, and so that was a case of going on Shazam and going, this looks pretty decent. And then it turned out to be pretty decent. So I don't think it really qualifies, but well done to David Sandberg for making a pretty decent film. <laughs> I, I actually really liked it. That made it's really sense. fun. It's, it's not even a little fun. bar. It's just, I don't know what it is. It's a bar. It's just a bar. Um, I think my most iconic moment, thank you for asking, Chris, uh, is uh, I was on set of Spider-Man Far From Home. And if you remember the sequence where Mysterio ooh, uh, attacks Venice, yay! Uh, not attacking Venice, that's bad. <laughs> that was but I was just yay for the culture and history of that great and wonderful city. Um, but he attacks Venice, and you'll remember this bit. You know the bit where Peter Parker gets splashed in the face with some water? I was on set all day, and that was the one shot I saw. So I think, <laughs> oh, wow. I think that stands out for wow. me yeah. very, that's... very much so. That's the most iconic moment. I also saw, mm. and genuinely, uh, you may argue with this being iconic, but I saw the fence gag in Hot Fuzz being shot. That's iconic. That's Which, iconic. Yeah, that's pretty How cool. many takes? Uh, I can't remember, because I didn't take notes at that point when I went in set visits, because my, my motto for years was like, if it's worth remembering, I will remember it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I would get to a point where like, I'd be on set a year or so after a movie came out and I'd go to write the feature and go, I don't remember it. <laughs> I should probably start writing some shit down. Uh, but I do remember, so you'll, you'll know that scene where uh, Simon, uh, what's his name? Peg. Simon Peg. I know his name. Simon Peg leaps over the fences and does that big somersault in the air. Well, that's his stunt double who is hidden under uh, another fence right at the end. And so Simon jumps over a fence and drops down. And then the stunt double comes up and lands on the trampoline and bounces and does the triple salco or whatever it is. Uh, so there you go. Pulling back a little bit of the, uh, the curtain there. A little bit of movie-making magic for you. Ruined. Uh, but Nick Frost did his own stunts. <laughs> <laughs> I can exclusively reveal that. Wow. What was your other Potter one? You're going to say one more. Harry Potter. Harry Potter? Oh. Harry Potter. What did you see? I, I remember seeing the <laughs> fire in the room of requirement. Holy shit, guys. It was really hot. Okay. Fire is hot. There's another yes. takeaway. That is absolutely I was on set of Harry Potter, just not officially. This was... But no, what? this is actually true. So... <laughs> Way, way, way back. I've been at Empire a really long Does time. this explain the restraining order? <laughs> so, so, I went on set of Harry Potter because back, back, way back when, when I started as a lowly reporter on the website, we used to do the thing where we'd try and get little, we couldn't afford pat pictures, so we used to take our own. So the editor then sent me to the set of Harry Potter shooting at Oxford and get some pictures of the set. So I went up and uh, I, they were shooting in a kind of closed hall area. So I climbed up, I found a door that 
opened and climbed up some stairs so and weird. got wedged under something and it all got a bit awkward. But then I, I found myself into this room. So I'm wearing a coat and I had this big camera, I had it hid under the coat. And I'm in this room just trying to get pictures down. I've got this camera, I'm trying to look down. And I turn around and I was like, oh, I'm in a bathroom. And there's a sign on the door that says, children's bathroom, no adults. And I'm standing there. <laughs> And I can't emphasize this enough, in an ankle length coach with a long lens camera. <laughs> it was really, really fucking awkward. And this is why you're in Slytherin. 100% true. I can also, I can also say one thing, that uh, they, were, they had uh, trophies and stuff in, in the main Hogwarts Hall, and they had a cut with Tom Riddle's name engraved on the thing, and they'd spelled his name wrong. And obviously, that's kind of a big deal in the second film. And I may or may not have pointed out and got shouted at by the unit publicist. <laughs> so you deserved it. <laughs> so many secrets revealed here. <laughs> the wow. chamber of secrets has been opened. I'm now not allowed to go within 300 yards of a Harry Potter set. <laughs> you should be allowed to go within 300 yards of anybody. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! I genuinely, I'd heard elements of that story, but I hadn't heard, <laughs> I heard all of it. Those elements before. <laughs> wow. Statue of limitations has elapsed, so I'm allowed to talk about it now. Oh yeah, that's that's how that works. <laughs> Wow. Absolutely. Totally. Time now for our first guests. They are an actor and director duo who are amongst this country's finest, this country's finest actors and directors and also actor-director duos. They first worked together in 2002, and since then they've regularly collaborated on projects that have graced the big and small screens. Their next movie is out on February 21st, and it's about a fashion retail tycoon who has amassed a huge fortune through, well, greed and it's a bit of a belter. Please welcome the director and the star of 24-Hour Party People, A Cock and Bull Story, The Trip, The Look of Love, The Trip to Italy, The Trip to Spain, soon The Trip to Greece, and now Greed, Michael Winterbottom and Steve Coogan! You've been welcome, well welcome. trained. I heard you practicing that before. Yeah, uh, this is true. I'm not dressed like this for the podcast, by the way. I'm going to an awards ceremony afterwards. I don't even think uh, I always put on three-piece suits for podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I like to wear usually nothing under the waist for podcasts. So, well, that's enough of that. Yeah, I had to dress up for this. We were speaking backstage about how uh, amazingly, my first ever set visit for Empire was on 24-hour party people. You guys don't remember it, obviously, but. That was where you first collaborated together. Can, can you talk about how you first met and was it on that project or had you been circling around each other for a while before that? Uh, I, think we met, uh, I think we met a couple of times just before that, but really talk, mainly talking about that. And that um, on, the, on 25 Party People, like, we'd been doing a film before that in Canada and we, we were prepping it for a couple of years and uh, so we were stuck in the middle of nowhere in Canada and sort of thinking it'd be nice to do something sort of indoor. It was like in sort of minus 20 degrees up in the north of uh, BC. And we were sort of thinking it'd be nice to do something sort of indoors and close to where we came from and something we knew something, a little bit about. So we sort of, that was the idea of 24 Hour Plus People. And really kind of thought of Steve for the role before anything else really. So, so, yeah, so the first thing was to try and persuade Steve to, to play Tony Wilson. Yeah, I, I, well I read about it. I read about it in the paper. I read in the paper that I was I was going to be in a film called 24 Hour Party. I did, and I, and I went. So I rang Revolution and said, 
Uh, I just read something in the paper. And, oh, yeah, yeah, we want you to do this film. Um, we forgot to ask you. Uh, and so, and I said, all right, then I'll do it. And, uh, uh, I, yeah, uh, so that's when we, yeah, that is when we, we first, that was quite a sort of, uh, uh, 2001 we filmed that and yeah. uh, that was uh, yeah I think of all the films you know I've done with Michael it's my favourite uh, because uh, it's very close to my you know my, where I'm, I'm from Manchester and it's yeah. sort, of, sort of so it's like a kind of and I was there I used to go to Hacienda so it sort of it feels like a, I sort of relived a period of my life uh, but you know from a different perspective and Tony Wilson was a big figure for you growing up I guess as well. yeah, yeah 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 so so yeah it was we were, I was always on my brother was in a band we were, we were always on the periphery of that sort of uh, that, that scene so uh, that's uh, that's got a, a, a very you know that's very I, I like that film <laughs> that's all I was to say so why it's a good film yeah. uh, and at what point did you guys know that you were clicking that you wanted to work together again and again and again and again uh, uh, well, I think it just sort of happened, didn't it? I mean, I mean, I, I, mean, I like, I, well, I like working with Michael because he's very different from other directors. He doesn't like the sort of, uh, you know, I, I very rarely get asked to hit a mark or find the light, which you often are asked to do in in films. Uh, and uh, he, he doesn't like too much technical stuff to distract the actors from what they're doing. So. Uh, it's, so it's a novelty when I first worked with Michael because um, often there's no safe place for there's no sort of video village or or, group, or a crew anyway. In fact, there's no wardrobe or makeup or even continuity on on, on the set allowed on set basically. So so that you, the camera can point in any direction at any time. So everyone has to get out. And it's and I found when I worked with Michael that uh, I. I uh, I sort of forget about the camera. Actually, sometimes I don't know whether the camera where, where the camera is when I'm in, in the scene. It's, it's uh, very feels very fluid, and, uh, and so it was quite exciting for me to, to work that way. And uh, it felt felt like you could really. Twenty four hour party people was the first experience I'd had where I felt like uh, I, I, I think back to it now. I can't remember what was in the film, what was just hanging out. <laughs> so it's, it all sort of melds into into one. It was very sort of uh, felt like a, a very authentic experience yeah. felt, felt like making the film felt like living it you know I remember when it was coming to an end I thought I don't want this to stop I'm quite enjoying being Tony Wilson you know <laughs> to live in this parallel universe of fun <laughs> and Michael what was it about Steve that, uh, that clicked for you well it was a lot of fun making the film but I think you know um, I mean like I say the, the, we, before we even got to sort of write a script or anything we, we, we the, the idea was that Steve would play Tony and then we spent quite a lot of time with Tony Wilson telling us stories about about what had happened uh, in various phases of his life, but I think you know working with Steve is like you know obviously Steve's brilliant what he does, but you know he's used to being to generating material as well. I think before that I probably either worked with non-professional actors or, or or with you know kind of normal actors where it's very script based, and uh, you know working with Steve and it's true I think other people who do comedy as well like they're much more used to the idea that you know they're coming up with ideas they're coming up with dialogue so it's like you know from my point of view I could just kind of the camera you know the idea was the camera just sort of followed Steve around and Steve came up with loads of stuff so it was it was incredibly relaxing and kind of enjoyable to do because it was just, it was just really kind of recording what what was happening on set is that does that style still apply to something like greed <clears throat> yeah le- le- less so in greed I mean, I mean the, the idea on greed um, the idea on Greed was to be improvised, but I mean, but we had a script. You know, as on Twenty Four Hour Party, we had a script, 
Uh, I think 24 hour paper because the, the the kind of the nature of that story was about bands that were very chaotic one of the things that really appealed was that all you know that that, that world was very chaotic and yet out of all the chaos and mess and stupidities some brilliant things were made um, so in a way that the thing on set was very kind of relaxed and anarchic as well I think on greed the idea was to be improvised and it was improvisation but not not as much Mm. Um, not as much as this. and we had loads of great you know kind of people working with, with Steve on that as well yeah as we did in 24 hours so we like, on greed there's David Mitchell and Asim Chowdhury and Sarah Salmani we had you know, loads of Tim Keyes loads, of, loads and loads mm. of brilliant people but perhaps almost because there were so many people it's quite a busy film greed you know, obviously it's, it, it, greed cuts together lots of different worlds and it's sort of it's, it's, you know, it's trying to drag drag together to try and show the connections between parts of the world that are very different and very separate, but are really connected. So he's trying to show that you know the billionaire on the yacht who's made his money from 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 high street fashion, retail fashion. He's made his money from the clothes that are made by millions of women workers who are getting paid twenty or thirty cents an hour to make them. And so these these two people in these totally separate worlds that seem very disconnected, it's very hard to get to drag together, are actually really intimately connected because it's the, it's the work of those women who are working for almost nothing that is paying for the billionaire and his yacht and, and, and his parties. And so, so, so there's lots of bits like that to piece together. So it's probably less, less kind of freewheeling in a way than 24-hour party. Okay, interesting. And, and, and Steve, at what point do you and Michael talk about collaborating? At what point did greed come into your lives? I mean, were you talking about the trip to Greece um, already? Michael, come on. Oh, <laughs> um, so, uh, what was the question? Well, what point did, I've forgotten, to be honest, but so, uh, what point uh, did greed come into your life? The film, not greed. the uh, concept. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's another, that's another story. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, uh, no, um, well, I think my, I heard Michael was doing it, and then uh, and someone else. I think he was, he was going to do it with someone else, and they pulled out. And I, it's, that's true. Um, and then I said, "Well, hey, I'll do it." Uh, and uh, that's sort of how it came about. And I like the idea of it too. I like the idea of playing this. Uh, well, the the character is obviously a, sort of uh, an amalgam of different people, but it's mostly Philip Green. Um, <laughs> Um, I said, I don't look like him. Phew. Uh, but uh, it, it, was, it was an amalgam of different people. We, we, we did, we, although it's, it is loosely, there's lots of Philip Green bits in it, um, it's not really about him as such. There's lots of people who, you know, lots of people who practice nefarious business uh, in, t- in terms of high street fashion and uh, in terms of the developing world. They, they pay these people, you know, three and a half dollars a day. Um, some of them don't have running water, and uh, and all the, the clothes they make end up in the high street, uh, sort of for people to buy. You know, for the, they sort of create these different seasons, four seasons a year, so people keep buying these clothes. So there's not just the, there's two things really I'm interested in, in the film, uh, in making the film was because uh, it talks about poverty and the imbalance of power and uh, the sort of disparity between rich and poor in the world um, that no one. But it's funny because I was thinking about all the things that we talk about at the moment, like gender politics, and we, we, we talk about the environment. But um, sort of the biggest issue, I think, is, uh, is poverty. Uh, and, and those things can be, can be related to it. And they're, they're, those other issues are important. But I think poverty is quite a big thing. That, oh, it's almost like, oh, we've already had that conversation, kind of thing, you know. We, we, never, we didn't come to a conclusion. You know? but, but I think uh, it is something that's worth talking about. And uh, 
hopefully the ethics of the high street you know might become something that people talk becomes one of those talking points it, i don't think it really is at the moment and so it's just uh, my hope is that this film might encourage that and the, the, one of the uh, threads that runs through the film is the refugee crisis as well there's uh, uh, uh michael i'm correct in thinking that one of the actors in the film actually is a refugee no all the refugees in the film are refugees and all the women workers in sri lanka we filmed it, the, the women workers we chose to be as uh, you know example of, of how it connects to her in sri lanka so those women workers are, are women workers in sri lanka it's like you know i think it's it's always easier and better to use people who kind of know who they are and, and what they're doing. And in fact, the, the, Kareem, one of the refugees, who's, uh, who, yeah, so, so in, in the story, so in the story, it's, it's really about trying to make connections between things that are connected but aren't visible. One of the attractions for me was to try and take these different worlds and show the way they link. So there's a sort of party, there's like a big party that, that Rich uh, McCree, the Steve's character, is throwing to try and, uh, because he's had this crisis where he's, he's, one of his businesses has gone bankrupt, he's throwing a big party, trying to get lots of celebrities to come along and show that he's still kind of successful. And, uh, and, so, and so it's like trying to make the connections between his business and the women in Shanka and then on the party they're trying to throw this party uh, but on the beach there's some it's, a, it's on an island in Greece it's kind of Roman themed party on an island in Greece and there's a, there's a bunch of refugees living on the beach you know and, uh, and, so, and, so, and so it's like it's, it's sort of trying to you know, you know so the, the, the refugees are a way of sort of in the party storyline the parallel to the women but, you know, people that when we go on holiday in the Mediterranean we know that we know that you know thousands of people lost their lives across the Mediterranean we know there's you know, millions of refugees, but we just try not to think about them and hope, hope that you know they go away. Or, or by not thinking about them, we don't have to worry about them. And um, you're back in Greece again for the next project together, which is the trip to Greece, which I'm tremendously excited about. And especially because Steve, at the at the end of the last episode of the uh, the trip to Spain, you looked like you were having a massive existential crisis and might not make it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what can you tell us about well, this one? Well, uh, it, it turned, well, anyone who saw the last series, there's a sort of group of... Um, nice men. Nice men. <laughs> uh, so there's a group, a group of men in a truck coming towards uh, me and uh, I'm not sure whether they're friends or foes. And uh, uh, there's an irony about it because I've been talking throughout the series about... Um, how important Islam is in the history of you know, religion and how it sort of led the field in science and was traditionally more tolerant in, in Spain, certainly in sort of the history of Spain. And, and so I, I'm, I'm always sort of piping up about it and saying how it's misrepresented. That's my sort of, uh, my, my stick in the, in the series. And so uh, it looks like, uh, well, what it turns out to be is a bit of Islamophobia on Steve Coogan's part, but Steve Coogan, the character in the trip, not this Coogan. I'm very un-Islamophobic. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's what it, it turned out that I, there, there was no threat. It was all in my head. So, so you're back, having more uh, yeah, luscious so this, food. So this, is, well, I, this is the last one. This, this yes. So it's, oh, okay. uh, yes, yeah. the last trip is uh, to Greece. And it's, we, it, it, we sort of follow in the footsteps of... Uh, Odysseus and Homer's Odyssey. We sort of we, we, we trace that, that that journey. Um I said we do it more quickly. It took ten years for <laughs> and uh although we've been doing the trip for ten years, so um so yeah, it's uh, in you know Greek philosophy, Greek mythology and uh funny voices. <laughs> Why is this the last one? Has 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 Rob died and nobody's told us what's <laughs> what's happening? 
No, it, it felt like, uh, you know, we've been doing it for a while. And, um, and it's, you know, it has been ten, you know, almost 10 years since we started. So, so we, we use the Odyssey. And the Odyssey, the Odyssey is like, Odyssey has been away for 10 years from his, his wife and his, his son, his other man, his son, when he was a baby. And then it takes 10 years to get back. So it's like been 20 years since he's been at home and he finally ends up getting back home. So Steve's journey in the film kind of echoes that journey of the Odyssey. So he, he makes his own personal Odyssey as well as, as actually the trip around Greece. Cannot wait. I've got to let you guys go in a second, but I have to mention Martin Brennan because that character was the character of 2019. And uh, regular listeners to the Empire podcast and indeed the pilot podcast will know that who the hell is that is, is said more often yeah. than it should be, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> where did he come from? Uh, Martin, well, I've, I've got a lot of Irish heritage and I don't like, and so I, I was quite specific about the, uh, the accent where he was from, so, which is why, why a lot of Irish people were very cool with it. Um, my, my mother was worried that I was going to be upset on no, relatives. I've met um, people like that. I grew up with people. Well, I know. Well, well. I, I, spent, I spent lots of summers in, in Ireland, so I, I did meet lots of people like that. And... Uh, uh, I thought it'd be funny to have, and also he gets the better of Alan on the show. If anyone doesn't know, I do this Irish character who's an Alan Partridge lookalike. <laughs> yeah, I got the part, uh, and uh, and uh, and it was it was a lot it was a lot of fun. But um, I like the fact that his yeah, I'd, we not we don't take the piss out of him. He takes the piss out of Alan, mm-hmm. so that's why that's yeah. why it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, have we seen the last of him? Is is that a uh, well? No, no, I don't. I, well, I, I like I liked doing him. You know. Yeah. Um, so I think no, I think he might come uh, show his because uh, we're probably going to do another series of okay. uh, this time. Like Fantastic. That. So uh, yeah, so he'll. I'm sure he might make another appearance. Yeah. There are yeah. always more IRA propaganda songs to, <laughs> to squeeze into well, primetime BBC One. Part of it was I thought I wonder how, if we could get an IRA rebel song on BBC One. <laughs> So, so maybe we can get two. Uh, some, sometimes you do. That's a way when you write. You sometimes think, I wonder if we can do this, and then you work your way towards it. And uh, yes, I mean we did. We did like the, like when the, the old the old Alan Party series. I can't remember which one. Um, when I when, when I'm shouting, I shout Dan fourteen times. You know, we just thought, how many times can I say his name when it so it becomes uh, and, and get away with it. Really. So it becomes. Uh, that becomes the, the primary objective. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I look forward to seeing his return and, of course, the trip to Greece. And Greed's out on February 21st, everybody. Please give it up once again. Michael Winterbottom and Steve Coogan. <laughs> Okay, so Greed opens on 21st of February and will be reviewed on a later show. And time now for our second guest, who is a wonderful and fast-rising British actor. How fast-rising? Well, her first film, Daphne, put her firmly on the map, but not quite as firmly as her second movie, which bagged her the Best Actress Award at last year's Cannes Film Festival. Will you please welcome the wonderful star of Daphne and now Little Joe, Emily Beecham! Um, this is Dan Jolin, everybody. Hello. Hello. Enjoy the interview. Bye-bye. Cheers. Oh, Emily, how are you doing? Oh, great, thanks. Happy to be here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Everyone else is, happy to be this here? This is lively. Good. Are you happy for Emily to be here? 
Great. Thanks. Great. So um, I don't know how much people know about Little Joe. I mean, uh, I kind of I know, I'm worried slightly about how much detail to go into. But uh, mm. what do you think? I mean, what was it about Little Joe that hooked you? I mean, what made you want to do it? Well, Jessica Hausner. I don't know if anyone knows Jessica Hausner's film. She's a very culty director. Mm. And she is an Austrian director, and she did a film called Lords before, and Amor Few. I'd seen Lords before I met her, and she's got her, all her films have a very dark humour, and they're very they're very um, naturally played acting wise, but they're also really strong visually. They've yeah. got a really strong aesthetic, and Little Joe certainly has that. It's quite acid colours and quite yeah. loud, and the the soundtrack is. Is, is is was initially on Maya Deren's films, her experimental art films right. in the forties. Yeah, right. it's a lot okay. of drums and squealing and and dogs and dogs. Yeah. Well, I know the dogs was added later. They, the dogs wasn't in my. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Tell us about who you play. You play Alice, and and she yeah. is a genetic engineer botanist. I would I would say is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. She's a very clever genetic engineer. She's very good at her job and has genetically modified a plant that makes uh, gives off a scent that makes the sniffer happy but she used an unauthorized virus vector which is something a tool to edit genes <laughs> i know all about this now and um and it mutates because plants often adapt to survive and it's it's mutated now it's out of her control and she's crapping herself because she doesn't know what to do and she goes down this rabbit hole of paranoia hmm. and yeah yeah it's kind of a conspiracy thriller but the conspiracy is sort of being being conducted by plants yeah sort of yeah, yeah. I, I thought it looked kind of like a triffid when i first when she first showed it to me but she'd never heard of a triffid before right um oh. but she was inspired by invasion of the body snatchers stepford wives and frankenstein so the plant yeah. is a bit like her monster and it gets out of control and then of course he tries to destroy his monster his yeah. beloved child and little joe is her child yeah. it's a creepy plant actually i was going if you've seen the trailer you see i mean what weird question everybody but, finds but, it creepy yeah but was it was it creepy to work with was, no. the plant was actually there wasn't it it was not yeah like a CG well i did plant. a lot of caressing to the plant and it's it's really quite harmless but right. um yeah every journalist has said oh it disturbs me well, there, yeah, there can be something <laughs> weird and unsettling about plants. You know? Yeah, I have one now in my home. There were thousands of them. <laughs> Honestly, there were thousands of them. A whole plant house of little Joes. Right. So there's you, hundreds to go around as well. I'm sure if somebody wants one, they can. Okay. Ask. I, know, I, I wouldn't want it anywhere near my house. Okay. Yeah. No. Well, it's very aesthetically pleasing. It's very pretty. So did did you did you have to kind of you know. Study botany, and did you kind of get get your head in? A little bit. We extracted DNA from a leaf. Yes, we did. Before we um, before wow. we started, the production organised for us to go to a lab, and they showed us how to extract it with pipettes and a machine that spins it round at this crazy speed, and then you pop it in a box, which is like a luminous violet LED light, and you pop it in there. I have no idea what it does, and then you take it out and you compare it on a very confusing chart and after all that Ben Wish and I were like we've no idea no idea what we've done um, <laughs> and we went home and watched videos and read more and slowly slightly st started to sink in but we really didn't know what we did but it was really an exercise to get familiar with all the equipment right but it's oh gosh it's confusing stuff okay. 
What did you do with plant DNA? Have you, have you still got it in like a petri dish? We just measured it. You're supposed to measure it, measure it on a chart, but the chart is really confusing. It's just a chart with numbers, and that means something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it meant, but yeah. Okay, well, you, you, you mentioned, <laughs> Sorry. You mentioned work, okay. uh, working with, with Jessica. She's, she strikes me as, judging, judging her films, a very precise yes. filmmaker. Everything's very choreographed, mm-hmm. it seemed. Um, how was that to work with? I mean, Oh, a big challenge. It was interesting, though, because you're kind of inside, you get a peep into, inside her imagination, mm. and that's really unusual. She's got this super creative mind, and she had this really strong vision of what she wanted the whole time, right from the beginning. So you just go, what's happening now, Jessica? And then she'd tell us. But um, yeah. Ben and I would joke that you couldn't really massively prepare before each scene because you never knew what kind of thing she was going to suggest. So she'd be like, oh, I think, you know, you're really cool here. You just, and, and really surprise you. So... I think the whole journey and playing it was always back and forth. It was a bit, yeah. I mean, mm. Alice is is constantly trying to justify it, say, oh, there's a psychological explanation for it. Everybody's crazy. And there's also, there's a scientific explanation. I have screwed it up and it's going to kill everyone. And then another explanation, which is, this is all nonsense. I've lost my mind. What am I being silly? Mm. So it, she's constantly flitting between all of these things and... That must be really tough, though. I mean, you kind was, of like, yeah, you know, it was confusing. The, the classic thing is, what's my motivation? But it's kind of like if she's saying that you've got potentially three Shifts different... Shifts all the time, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a very subtle film as well. I thought mm. it was all the, like, because the idea is that people are ch- potentially being changed, but they're also covering up the fact that they're being changed. So then you're yeah. never quite sure mm. what's really going on under the surface. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, obviously you deservedly won an award for this performance, but, but partly because of that, because how did you handle that? How did you keep track? With, with all the characters. Well, Jessica's always there. We're always talking about the subtext between all the characters and all these power plays and constant paranoia she's quite a heady character so mm. she's really cerebral in her head and intellectual and um so that's how we that's how we handled it i guess it is quite stepford wivesy you never quite know who's bluffing or who's yeah. double bluffing like her son there were moments where Jessica and I weren't even sure. We were like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> where are we? What are we doing? And then we realized afterwards watching, we were like, oh, that was fine. That's yeah. all we had to do. It's because I think it's, it's, it's yeah, mm-hmm. it's just double bluff, bluff, bluff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so obviously I said Jessica's very precise. You've also, uh, excitingly, for me at least, uh, worked with the Coen brothers yes. in the past. Were, were, you know, were they, how were they to work with? Lovely. Like they're, they're, they're precision engineers, oh, uh, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They were super chilled. They were very fun. Hmm. Um, they were pretty free with what you could do. Oh, it wow. it seems like a quite a familial, fun atmosphere. Um, yeah, and I think maybe they, they, they make so much, so I get, I'm guessing they have so much trust and freedom, hmm. which is rare, you yeah. know, unusual, amazing position to be in. Awesome. To be able to go, oh, let's do that, and yeah. change the script without hundreds of people going, no! Well, that's really interesting, because I, I, I was always under the impression that they were like, they, that you couldn't change a word, if there was a comma in one, in a Coen Brothers script, then the no. comma had to stay, <laughs> that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know, well, they'd suggest things, suggest new things, they'd be like, oh, try this, and we'll try that. Hmm. Yeah, that was my experience, but... Cool. 
It's such a, it's such a great scene. I love that scene. It's a, yeah. This is in Hail Caesar. It's the, the whole scene with Alden Aaron Reich. Uh, would that it were so simple. Yeah. Which... which I've got to say it. To <laughs> yeah, say we're, we're doing so simple. Um, and uh, yeah, I was going to say, you know, come and sit on the, join us on no, the divan. Join us on the divan, the yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, sort of dominated the trailer for that. <laughs> anyway, there you go. That's, that's, that's Hail Caesar. We've Emily, done that. join Nick. us on the divan. Tick Hail Caesar, brilliant. But uh, um, Daphne, of course. That yes. Was, you know, that was the big film for you. Yeah, yeah, it was a real breakthrough and it was such a nice opportunity. I wanted to play a role like that forever. She mm. was just such an unapologetic, acerbic, um, angry, funny, smart uh, character. And there really aren't many female protagonists like that out there. So it was a real gift. Hmm. I just thought, I just, and, and also I had so many people come up to me afterwards and said, oh, she's like my sister. She's like my friend. She's me. And I related to her and I saw parts of my friends in her. And I just think that's really rare. And it's also really important to see hmm. people that you relate to. And, and women haven't had a ma massive amount of that. And it's great that Fleabag has gotten so much attention. And now there's been a big insurgence of, 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 of new, interesting female characters which is is yeah. is nice because none of us are perfect yeah. <laughs> so. so did that i mean did that have a big impact for you then i mean did, did, did it feel like a breakthrough for you yeah it, it 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 did and it was so nice working with peter mackie burns and the film company and they're so respectful it was one of the first times that i felt like i, I was invited to have a be more collaborative yeah and that my input was respected and wanted and um that's a brilliant uh, that's 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 a, a wonderful thing about um, your career being able to transition onto something else. You you start feeling like you're actually doing something, yeah, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to just churning out lines. Um, but it makes it so much more stimulating and you know meaty. Much mm. more to do. But does it also? I mean, I'm not not saying spoil you necessarily. But does yeah. it also kind of like then when you go back to doing sort of more prescribed mm -hmm. things? Yeah. You kind of do you miss it, and do you think mm -hmm. oh, I kind of? I haven't done that yet. Maybe okay. I will. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so so winning obviously at Cannes uh, was obviously a fantastic moment yeah. for you. I mean, have you felt the difference? You know, have you felt the impact of? Well, of I've that? certainly been reading some really interesting scripts and. Um, Actually, surprisingly, a lot of, not surprisingly, a lot of quite environmental horrors, actually. Some really well-written ones, <laughs> terrifying. Hopefully not, you know, hopefully not things that will actually happen, but, um, but plausibly. Anyway, okay. but, um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I've been meeting some really interesting filmmakers, and that's really all you can, that's the best possible thing that can come out of it, really. Hmm. Um, it's meeting people who inspire you, and, yeah. All right. Any sort of pinch yourself moments then with the kind of people you found yourself in a room with? Kind of. Well, I don't know. I signed a confidentiality agreement, so I might get into loads of trouble. But it is quite funny okay. and juicy. We will all promise <laughs> not to repeat anything. No. Okay. But you have yeah, you have got that. things coming up which are are official, which we can. Talk. So yeah. so so you know, I'm kind of interested in a few of these things. Can we can we look at them? Uh, yeah. So uh, sulfur and white. Yes. With uh, Mark Stanley. Yes. Yes. It's a bit of a tearjerker, right. but it's also really inspiring. It's the true life story of a man called David Tate, who experienced quite a, a very extremely difficult childhood. That's an understatement. Uh, lots of abuse when he was little, and he um, 
grew up with this dark secret and hid it his whole life and he had alcoholism, drug addiction, etc. And um, a suicide attempt. And then eventually he, he opened up to his partner, Vanessa, who I play, and she encouraged him to open up. And it's online. You can go and watch the video of him mm. telling everybody at an NSPCC conference, um, including all his colleagues, about his sexual abuse as a child and how he was um, raped as a child. And, and it's extraordinary, such a brave thing to do and just how that is a massive impact just just coming out with it and being open about it and and now he's he's he was on set lots with the mm. film and even though it brought about a huge amount of anxiety for him he's still saying you know just it's the message that counts and he to keep telling himself it's the message so it's important for others to know who are suffering that there is a way out and yeah it's a real tearjerker it's making me feel sad <laughs> emotional oh, sorry, know, but, sorry. but it's, um, it's really positive though obviously yeah and um and the other one is um, uh, Outside the Wire, right. which is a Netflix film with Anthony Mackie and Damson Idris, who are both really fantastic. Hmm. And uh, it's set in the future about um, artificial intelligence using AI in warfare and that whole conflict of yeah. should that happen, shouldn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's loosely inspired by pro-Ukrainian pro and Russian insurgents groups. And yeah... I, I think it will be interesting. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Sounds meaty. It is meaty, Excellent. yes. Excellent. And then Cruella. And then Cruella, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Cruella, which has lots of Dalmatians in it. And <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really cheap. Real or CG? Real? Come okay, on. Okay, good, good. Yes. Real. I, I, I wasn't in any scenes with any of the Dalmatians, but I did see them being trained. They're pretty fabulous. And oh. Dalmatians are really hard to train, so that's quite a feat. Wow. I grew up with the Dalmatian. They're nuts. Oh really? It was yeah, they're, they're untrainable. Oh. <laughs> did you did you mention that in the in the audition then that you've got no, Dalmatian I didn't. experience? No, no, I didn't. Hang on, how could you not mention that? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, no, I, did, I didn't. Um, but uh, yeah, there's loads of great costumes in that. It's very Vivian Westwood inspired and London feel to it, hmm. and it's a bit an anarchic story. And Craig Gillespie, who directed I Tonya and um, Lars and the Real Girls, directing it, so it's got Fantastic. quite an edge to it yeah and he wanted it improvised and make up lines which i love you know when they give you a paragraph seconds before you're about to shoot and you have to memorize it <laughs> i'm joking no it's fine um and um yeah so i think there's a real naturalness to it and a, and a humor humorous quality to it and i think it'll be quite splendid awesome i wait Brilliant. Well, that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. It's nice to meet you. It'll be done. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you very much. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Bye. Emily Beecham! And Dan Jolin. Fuck that guy. <laughs> Emily Beecham! Dan Jolin. Uh, yeah, that's better, you see? Yeah, that's good. Little Joe is released on the 21st of February and will be reviewed on a later episode. And this sensational hat-trick, Salah, uh, of guests <laughs> concludes with one of America's finest and most eclectic directors. You can't pin this guy down. He is equally at home with Lush, dark romances, vivid glam biopics, and movies starring, frankly, 
Dolls. Uh, and his next film is a legal drama with a difference. Will you please welcome the director of Far From Heaven, Carol, Velvet Goldmine, and now Dark Waters, Todd Haynes! <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Just a little place. We've got a few yeah. friends in, you know. First of all, these people haven't seen Dark Waters yet, but I'm right. lucky enough to have seen it twice. Um, and it's fantastic. It's, a, it's an amazing legal drama, but it's a bit different from the norm, isn't it? Because um, I've got a quote here I read. Um, your, your hero is obviously Rob Billot, yes. who's played by Mark Ruffalo. Yes. And one of his colleagues said about him, to say that Rob Billot is understated <laughs> is an understatement. <laughs> So, so what do you do when that guy is your hero? Well, it was, it was a challenge, and it was particularly a challenge when Mark Ruffalo is playing him, who is sort of the antithesis of, of, of Rob in every conceivable way. Now, you have to understand that Rob Balot is a lawyer based in Cincinnati, Ohio, who stumbled onto a story about uh, contamination in a farm in West Virginia. And he single-handedly followed the tracks of the lead of this story and uncovered the fact, the existence of a chemical that had only been hidden behind corporate walls called PFOA that's used in the manufacturing of Teflon and that is toxic and causes cancer and was already infiltrating this farmer's property. And what he ultimately uncovers in this story, this remarkable story mm. that's true, is that through the practices of the corporate corruption and greed of a, of a major chemical company like DuPont, this toxin has been spread into the water systems of the United States. It has spread through the entire country. It has spread through the entire globe. It is in 99% of all living creatures' bloodstreams today. And this all began because of this one lawyer who stumbled onto the story. Yeah. However guarded he is emotionally, yeah. Uh, we thought this was a story that needed to be told. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing is that he'd been, you know, toiling away in this case and, you know, without any support and hunching over and withdrawing. And while we were making the movie, I saw this man change physically and start to uncoil. Oh, cool. Just as Rob, just as Mark was committing yeah. himself to that, to that yeah. composure. Because he really is. And He's, they really were, exactly. Yeah. He doesn't look like no. Mark Ruffalo as we know him in the film. And the two men almost started to switch their physical physiognomies <laughs> in the course of making the movie. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and he's brought into it by this, this, um, this farmer that you mentioned, Will Tennant, yeah. who's, who's played by Bill Camp. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, is, that, is his accent that strong? It's very, it is that strong, wow. if not more so. Because it's a very thick kind of Appalachian. Appalachian, yeah. yeah. And Wilbur would document the demise of his cattle, of his cows. 200 cows died while, while uh, you know, drinking the water from a, from a creek yeah. that was the, the spill from a, from a uh, landfill that DuPont owned neighboring his property was killing the cows. And this tipped off the entire story. 
Uh, but he narrates. He has his own video camera, and he's narrating the demise of his cattle because no one's going to listen. No one's listening to him. And you hear this voice, and it and it's something that Bill, of course, used, and yeah. it still haunts us. He does. He's not survived uh, this story, unfortunately, uh, Wilbur. But his brother has, and a lot of really brave people in mm. West Virginia. Yeah. yeah, it takes a lot to to speak up in a situation like this, it really where does. everybody's livelihood in the town depends on Dupont. It, exactly. Yeah, it's a company town. Wow. So, so Mark, I think, brought this to you. Is that right? He did. And you were watching all the President's Men a lot at the time. I was, as I continue to do. It's a, <laughs> uh, unlike my other films, uh, some people say this is kind of a surprise that I would do a movie quite like this. Um, but I've always been a real admirer of that little moment in 70s filmmaking mm. that sort of produced those paranoia thrillers. Uh, Alan Bakula directed All the President's Men along with uh, Parallax View and Clute. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of called the Paranoia Trilogy. And they're exquisite filmmaking, but they really describe the sort of peril of the individual who stands up to systems of power and the alienation that they feel Mm -hmm. and they undergo. And you remember it in the images of those movies, you know, the scenes of of, uh, Robert Redford in the the parking garage when he meets Deep Throat, but even in the the offices of Washington Post. So you really experience it through the sort of interior spaces that these characters often occupy. And that was definitely true for Dark Waters. Well, yeah, because you went to the actual law offices and shot in these very gray, featureless kind of offices. Yeah. These were the actual law offices of Taft Law, where where Rob toiled through all those years and continues to work. Uh, But they offered, they had these weird triangular conference rooms and strange irregular windows along the walls yeah. and sort of you know eight late 80s design inside mm-hmm. and it offered a lot of visual opportunity yeah. i would have picked that location probably were it not <laughs> at the actual tableau offices just as yeah. for aesthetic reasons it's just the geometry of them and the sort of yeah it was almost like a modernist painting just almost all gray but yeah. just really interesting despite that and little weird glimpses through to the skyline of downtown Cincinnati where you'd see little surprise glimpses of the Ohio River which was really the the victim of this contamination. Well speaking of victim that's interesting because another 70s film that's obviously referenced in the opening is Jaws because essentially you kind of recreate the opening of Jaws but the the shark is the water because it's polluted so yeah. When did you make that decision? How, how did that come to it you? Was a, it was a stroke of the writer I brought onto the project who kind of did a revision of the script. We, this all happened very, very quickly because Mark, the, the story only broke in the New York Times in 2016. Mm-hmm. And Mark brought the project to me with participant media, the studio, who are sort of committed or mandated social justice themed films. They brought the film to me in 2017 with the first draft of a script. Mm-hmm. And I had a conflict with the window that Mark had available. It wasn't until the following year that that I became available to do it, and I kept thinking about it. By then, the first writer was busy, so I brought Mario on. And he and I went to Cincinnati together and met Rob Balot and met all of the central players Mm -hmm. in the story, and who became really a part of the making of the movie. And in fact, you even see them as extras in the film, and in one case, a cameo. Uh, but Mario had this great idea of starting the film in, in, in 78, 1978 with a couple of kids who can jump over a, uh, a fence into a river in, in uh, Parkersburg and take off all their clothes and jump in. 
and it's you know we remember what that that summons in our in our collective memory in movies but it's a dark it, it anticipates what the story is about but as you say the shark the danger is the water itself and uh the corporate practices that pollute our 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 world and that's something that obviously mark ruffalo has been very very heavily involved with for a yeah. long time is, is it something that you you know talk about and think about i guess we all do um as well i do i can't compare myself to Mark's extraordinary commitment yeah. to his activism and, and what Rob Balot has committed himself to. We just today were at the EU. Sorry to bring up the EU. <laughs> um, and it was a remarkable conference on what they call these, this class of chemicals is called forever chemicals. And it, it connects to all kinds of nonstick uh, products that they use a series of these chemicals for. And so the conference was on uh, for the forever chemical issue and how to uh, bring industry in combination with leadership and citizenry mm -hmm. to make some significant changes in this, in this uh, dire situation. And it was, yeah, it was pretty remarkable to be up there with, with Rob and Mark and, uh, and to hear them both speak, you know, and, and show clips of the movie and see that the movie really is broadening this discussion and bringing awareness to mm -hmm. this issue. Now, I approached it as a director of <laughs> dramatic material, yeah. and, and I was interested in it from a dramatic standpoint and the challenges that it created mm. to tell this complicated narrative, but to keep an audience, hopefully, connected to the emotional component, you know, that really is at stake in a story like this. And it, I mean, it is a really complicated, I, I don't want to oversell it, but, but it's complicated because yeah. it's a long period of time that yeah. the struggle went on for. Um, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say how long, but really long time. <laughs> it involves, you know, multiple court cases, multiple sort of slightly different approaches yeah. to the court case. Yeah. Um, it involves government regulation and state regulation. I mean, there's a lot You're of making it sound elements. so fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's human drama, people, human drama. Um, so, but, but yeah, it, it, you know, it's it's a lot to kind of digest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a superb piece of script writing just to get all of that it in is. there and make it, it clear. Is. It takes an economy, mm -hmm. and, uh, but, and yet you want to feel what an individual like this is up against and how much of a cost this kind of endeavor wages on a person's life, on their family life, on their, on their life at work, you know? And this is true for a very interesting network of people, all of whom were necessary to, to wage this fight, yeah. that crosses class lines and starts with Wilbur Tennant, the farmer in Parkersburg, but includes the lead plaintiffs in the class action lawsuit yeah. that he, that ultimately produced the largest epidemiological study in human history that was the 70,000 member class action suit that the film is sort of the second half of the film occupies itself with, which is an extraordinary feat, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how they finally were able to identify links to an unregulated chemical to six illnesses, including cancers. Yeah. And that really is a, a huge victory for the fight to identify an unregulated chemical, which makes it so tricky. Yeah, it's one of these things, I mean, it, it, it is quite hard to sum up why it's incredibly exciting, but there are so many moments in this film where you just go, what? That doesn't seem possible. There's a moment where it, it basically reveals that uh, the government trusted the chemical companies to tell them which chemicals were dangerous. Right. And they just listed those yeah. as dangerous chemicals and they regulated those, and they didn't regulate anything else. Right, self-regulation, you know, 
leave it to the industry yeah. to decide when to confess that they're doing something that might not be healthy to, yeah. the, to the public. And I mean, okay, I've spoiled one minor revelation, but like, there's a lot of moments like that in, in the film. Well, and the amazing kind of thing is there are those scenes in the movie, like the parking garage scene that we have in the film, and I won't give that away entirely, although it's in the trailer, I think. A little bit, yeah. Uh, that really is like a component of a classic thriller. Yeah. But it came directly out of Rob's own experience mm -hmm. when he went to depose the CEO of DuPont in Wilmington, Delaware, and he was alone, and he drove his car into the bottom of the parking garage, and it was the only car there. And he talked to his mother that day, and she said, Rob, does anybody know you're there at the DuPont headquarters, right? Yeah. The, belly said, the, the belly of the beast. The belly of the beast. And he said, no, actually. <laughs> and when he left after eight hours of deposing the CEO of DuPont, yeah. he feared for his life when he got back in his car, you know? Yeah. But this is like, this is the real deal. This really happened. So it was pretty, pretty remarkable. And, and his, his ethos was very much not, I want to bring these guys down. I want to, you know, because he came from a firm that yes. historically defended these he people. He was a corporate defense attorney yes. for the chemical industry. <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> but, but his ethos was very much, if they understand what they're doing, they'll definitely stop doing it. I just need to make them understand. Exactly. Which maybe is not quite that easy. It no, seems. it's not. I don't think he ever saw, I don't think anyone at Taflaw ever saw moral malfeasance to this degree, ethical yeah. malfeasance to this quantum degree. Yeah. And so they were astonished. And, and Tom Turp, who Tim Robin portrays, Tim Robbins portrays in the movie, who becomes a managing partner ultimately, but ran the environmental practice group at Taft. He, when we met him on Skype, the very first meeting when I was in Cincinnati, he said, this, we considered this a holy war. Mm. Like they had crossed the line, wow. you know? And, yeah. and, and that, that speech he gives in the movie pretty much demonstrates how he felt. Yeah. It was really good to see him because I feel like he hasn't been on our screens yeah. enough in the last few years. But, but tell me about the cast in general. Did they sort of come together quite quickly? You know, how did it work? They did. And it was incredible generosity and a commitment to the story that we were trying to tell and really getting into this culture. Mm -hmm. And the fact that nobody in this story, because as I, we were just talking about, Rob is on the wrong side of this issue at the yeah. beginning. And they're all basically pro-business, Republican. This is a very Republican city, Cincinnati, mm -hmm. business community. And Parkersburg, West Virginia is a conservative town. And so no one is your obvious sort of whistleblower politically or culturally. And it kind of gives them all more credibility in taking on this issue and learning what they do learn. Um, and as they see what they see, they'll never really regard the world in the same way or have the same expectations about the world again. And yeah. it changes you forever. Yeah, it really does. So, you know, you have moved away a bit from writing your own material in the last nearly decade, really, I guess. Um, what's that been like? Has it, has it, does it feel like it's kind of opened you up to kind of new experiences or are you kind of itching a little bit to get back to writing as well? Or how do you feel? It's been, it's been great because it, opened up the floodgates of projects that are out there. When I was developing and writing and researching my own stuff, it, uh, there was, as people have noted in the past, a lot of years between each project. And that was an amazing experience as well, to develop these projects myself. But now I feel like, I, like Carol came to me, and mm. it was an amazing script and piece of material and uh, that 
that uh, uh, Phyllis Nagy had been developing yeah. herself for about 10 years, that script based on the Patricia Highsmith novel. Um, and in each case, I do spend a lot of time and work with the scriptwriter on the on the development yeah. of the script. Um, and I'm sort of back in a project that I'm co-writing right now with a with a writer uh, that's a long form, uh, uh, episodic, uh, dramatic, um, historic piece for TV. Ooh. But I won't say more than that. It's uh, <laughs> quite a lot of words to go on. Lot, I think we can right? uh, we can start trying to figure it out. But uh, but no, it's been it's been great because I've just been yeah, it's just ex brought a lot of unexpected things my way. Mm -hmm. yeah. And dark, dark Waters is certainly one of them. Absolutely. And it feels like a real change from um, Wonderstruck, which felt like a real uh, yeah. change from Carol and everything Absolutely. else. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and just to, just to finish up, I mean, because it is Oscar week, um, are you aware how many people hold lifelong grudges against the Academy for their failure to give everything to Carol in 2015? Like, you know, are you, do you understand that in your bones? Because I think it's really important that you do. I do. I do. I feel it. I feel for them. Uh, no, the, the Carol community <laughs> continues, man. It's and it means so much to me. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My movies have sort of generated their own discrete audiences mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. are not always the same from film to film. <laughs> and I like that. There's something really interesting about doing different kinds of movies that really attract different kinds of people, you know. So if we set up a Todd Haynes convention, we'll have kind of warring tribes. Yes. Yeah, I like it. I don't know who my money's on. I really don't. Velvet Goldmine, Velvet maybe? Goldmine, watch out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Dangerous people. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, listen, thank you so much, thank Todd Thank you so Haynes. much, Helen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Todd Haynes, everybody! Todd Haynes! Let's practice this one more time. Todd Haynes! <laughs> Helen O'Hara! No! No, boo! Oh, unbelievable. Um, two, reviews. And the first film to be reviewed is up for many Oscars this weekend, and it is, of course, Doolittle. Bong Tuna. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, I think this film may be Winlittle, but we'll see. Uh, it is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, and Benjamin, you're going to start us off. Yes, and I am going to uh, already let you know that I'm not going to spoil a single thing about this film, because if you've heard anything about Parasite, you've heard that the less you know going into it, the better. And this that was the way that I saw it, and yep. it was amazing watching it unfold. So the very, very brief synopsis is um, it's set in Korea, where Bong Joon-ho is from. It follows a poor family called the Kims, who are struggling to make ends meet, uh, but a potential solution reveals itself that unfurls in unexpected ways. Um, if you've been a fan of Bong Joon-ho's stuff, he's done some amazing things over the last few years, stuff like The Host and Snowpiercer and Okja on Netflix. Um, you'll know that he does all kinds of crazy genre mishmashes. And Parasite is that. I, mm. You can't pin this film down exactly to what it is. No. I, I think the closest thing would be to say it's like a suspense thriller. It's like a classic suspense setup in that it places a load of dominoes up, and you are waiting and waiting for the dominoes to fall. But before they do, he stacks more dominoes, and there are dominoes on top of dominoes. There are so, it's like a domino house. Yes. Yeah, but it's, it, but it's funny also, so it doesn't quite feel right to leave art comedy, but yeah, it's yeah. not art comedy at all, but it is funny. 
It's a very strange uh, film in terms of genre, but it's so good to watch. And you, and, and again, please do try not to learn anything about it mm. beforehand. You do. I, I, I deliberately didn't, and yep. I went in blind. And it's, it is so fucking good. But as you say, it defies. It's really like someone came, I came out and said, "So, Parasite, what's that?" And I was like. <laughs> it's a Bong Joon-ho film. I mean, it's a in, film. The, in the same way that The Host was a monster movie, yeah. but it was also actually more of a social drama. Um, it, this is it, this is like that. And, and Snowpiercer, of course, is, yeah. uh, is an action thriller that's really more of a social drama. This one's probably, if you think about it, really more of a social so drama. More of a social drama. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of um, satire going on mm. that is just pitched exactly right the right level. It's not too buried, but it's also like not laboured at all. The thing that strikes me most about Parasite is that it is so precise mm. everything the way it's written the way it's performed the way it's made everything is in its place but at the same time sometimes when that happens a film can feel really airless sterile, it can feel yeah. very sterile and this isn't that at all it's like a crazy mix of being sort of alive and happening in the moment but it's so well planned mm. that it sort of teaches you to watch it as you watch it the way that the whole situation unfurls written written as a play initially before it yeah. was a film and you can see that you can see mm. that the um, because it's so driven by the situation in a fairly contained sort of set of locations. Um, it's just super satisfying the way that it unfurls. Um, Bong Joon Ho is working again with Song Kang Ho, who is um, an amazing actor who he worked with on things like The Host and Memories of Murder. Um, and a special shout out to Sodan Park, who plays the daughter of the Kim family, who is an absolute standout here. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, you will know who I'm talking about as you're leading the film. And yeah, it's just flipping brilliant. And if you've not seen any of Bong Joon-ho's stuff, like definitely go and seek it out. You can catch Snowpiercer's on Amazon Prime at the moment. Okja was on Netflix. Yep. You can get the host Other really easily. hits from the bong. Yes. Oh no, Chris. I come kept, on! Chris, no, come on, come on. Come I kept on. pushing for that when we had our Bong Joon-ho interview <laughs> in the magazine a couple of weeks ago. Nick kept saying, we need, we need a headline for this feature. And I kept going, hits from the bong. Hits from the bong. Yes. Cypress Hill. And Terry was hits like, from the bong. no. <laughs> it didn't stop me. But it's, but it's also the, the screenwriting is, is fucking incredible. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's touching. It's funny. It's got real rhythm to it. Like it's so, And this is the translation. I'm assuming it's even better than in, in the original Korean. But uh, yeah, loved it. It's one of those things where it's just like, don't listen to us talking about it. Don't read about it. Just go and fucking see just it. Go because see it. regardless see it. of what films you like or don't like, it's amazing. You'll love it. Watch yeah. it. The, the other thing that I should have written down, which I didn't, but whoever did the score for this the score is amazing there's like a really haunting like piano melody that um, plays over the intro of the film and it is amazing it's been yeah, it's playing over and over in my fantastic head fantastic story yeah. it should have been nominated more for the score I think than it has yeah. been um, but yeah it deserves all of the praise quite frankly yeah, and I, even I, more I really hope it wins a bunch of stuff for the Oscars mm. I, mm. And like it'll be fascinating to see if it does because it's not that often that films break out of the sort of film in a foreign language or whatever they're calling it these days um, and breaks through to the main categories and it is a film that I defy pretty much anyone over the age of 15 sitting down and watching it and not like being at least very entertained yeah. by it Absolutely. Um, so yeah fingers crossed Team Bong Bong Hive go um, see it well let's move from the sublime to the ridiculous and talk about Doolittle James ah uh, yes so this is Stephen Gaggan's take on their classic Hugh Lofting character uh, which is sort of Robert Downey Jr.'s first post Iron Man role in which he is the man who talks to the animals so 
And he this, can walk with the animals. Indeed he can. So this is a slightly odd one. So this takes place after he's gone full castaway and become this weird grizzly man recluse. And he's living in his mansion. He's retired from life. It's just him and a bunch of animals. And he gets called out of retirement because uh, Queen Victoria falls ill. So he well, is... the Queen, who's played by Jesse Buckley. It's apparently it is supposed to be Victoria. It is. Yeah, hmm. it's Queen Victoria. Um, um, so he's, he's called out of retirement to try and make her well by finding a mystical fruit from a magical island. So he goes off on a quest, don't laugh, he goes off on a quest and obviously takes an arseload of talking animals with him because clearly that's what you would do in that situation. Now- The word arseload is unfortunate in, in the context of this film. It is, this is a film that climaxes with a colonoscopy. Now, I put it to you that any film in which your lead character pulls bagpipes out of a dragon's asshole probably needs to take a step back and have a long, hard think about what it's trying to do. Um, this film is not great. Um, part of that is I think there are a lot, a lot of people playing a lot, a lot of animal voices. So you've is this got still Parasite, by the way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's an unorthodox take on the film. Pop out for a second. Uh, you got Kamel Nanjiani as a, as an ostrich. You got John Cena as a polar bear. Tom Holland is a dog. You've got Emma Thompson as a parrot. There's a lot going on, uh, but none of those animals are particularly well established. You don't really care about them. They're not particularly funny. Um, and they're they're weird American accents when they talk to yes. each other and call each other bro are really, really It's really jarring, but it's especially jarring because Doolittle himself is inexplicably Welsh. Now... Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Ah, yes. I'm oh. Doolittle. Oh, Barry. What one parrot can do, another can do. What one parrot can do. We're going to turn to the pair. Say with me, man. Say with me. What one parrot can do, another parrot can do. <laughs> so they kill a motherfucking parrot. <laughs> But the thing is, what's also funny is like, you can see it's really obviously overdubbed. So I was like, oh, is it a Shrek situation whereby, you know, he, they suddenly thought, you know what, this isn't working. Let's try again, but in fucking Welsh. But no, I think he's probably just gone for another bite at the apple and just try it again. Downey's really good. I don't think his accent's that bad. His accent's fine. Really I no, think no it's genuinely, fine, yeah. it's a good accent. It, it, yeah. it strays around the British Isles a bit no, and then it, takes a cruise sure, at one point. I'm genuinely uh, yeah, not so sure it does. Really? I think it's just because that's not how Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. speaks and my brain is having problems I think Robert Downey Jr. He's very good with accents. Mm. Uh, you fucking lay off Tony Stark, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I turn my back for five minutes, I walk out of for five minutes and he's dissing Tony Stark. It's true, it's happened. Thanos. This, uh, this film contains a celery-obsessed goose, which is A nice. what? A celery-obsessed goose. Yeah. Do you not remember I like that? that bit. You like See, that bit? Okay, He's going to absolutely yeah. you know, shit in this movie from Great Heights. And no, no, yeah, this is a film which contains the line, yeah. Dr. Doolittle does a little doo-doo. <laughs> See? I it's a laugh it. a minute. Five stars, Empire. <laughs> <laughs> and Ray Fiennes plays a tiger called Barry. I mean, what the fuck more do you want? Two stars. Well, two stars. Yeah. Two stars for Dr. Doolittle. Two stars. Okay. I have a fact for you. I have a fact for you. I mean, do we have to? A hot fact. Dr. Seriously. Dr. Doolittle actually originated because, uh, uh, this is actually true, so Lofting wrote letters to someone, he was in the trenches in World War I, and because he didn't want to write about, you know, limbs being blown off and mustard gas and shit, uh, he made up Dr. Doolittle and that's what he wrote about when he sent uh, letters back to his family. I mean, it's no Lord of the Rings, is it? No, granted, <laughs> but... It's not the war poets, you know, just saying. But yes, that's a lovely fact. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so next up we have uh, Doolittle, which is the... No, we've done no, that? we've done that. Oh, we've done Little. And uh, Parasite, you've done Parasite? Done Parasite. Yes. All right, okay, so we just start the show again? <laughs> What's next? Underwater and Birds of Prey. Underwater and Birds of Prey, thank yes. you, Helen. Uh, I should have written that down. Uh, so let's talk about Underwater next, because 
Yeah. Sure. Uh, underwater is kind of alien in the Marianas Trench. Ooh. There nope, you go. Nobody? No? Okay. Um, so this is uh, uh, Kristen Stewart uh, is brushing her teeth and. Uh, <laughs> not kidding. You really want to granular detail with <laughs> She starts uh, on the left, then she Chris, moves to the right. Kristen Stewart is brushing her teeth on the bottom of the ocean floor when everything goes to shit and she has to somehow escape this rig that she's on, which will be difficult because they're seven miles under the surface of the sea. Uh, has she run out of toothpaste? Yeah. <laughs> is that the disaster? What's Crucially, really she weird. doesn't floss at any point. Do you know How is she supposed weird to get floss? She she's under spit. the sea. She actually doesn't spit. That Hang was on. a bit the... That is true. And she doesn't do the biting surfaces. This is very important. Very I haven't seen this film. Um, is she... It's not a big part of the is movie. Is she indoors? <laughs> Is she indoors? She yeah, is. So it's basically, I mean, it's like a drilling sea. station at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So mm, it's like the abyss, okay? <laughs> okay. And she uh, and, and the drilling station basically starts to fall apart. And she and an, a number of other survivors, won't say how many, because spoiler, um, have to try and escape with their lives. What happens to the last scene? <laughs> I mean, I think that would be a spoiler as well. I'm trying to think if there's a way around it. Anyway, um, it turns out there are various different things that are causing the problem, um, which are going to cause problems for all the survivors. Uh, but there's, there's good casting uh, to some extent in that. To some extent. <laughs> that, well, that is the poster quote right I'm there. Get some to that. good casting to some extent. Because, like, Mamadou Athi is good, uh, Jessica Hennick is good, John Gallagher Jr. is good. We've got Vincent Cassell, he's brilliant, obviously. Stuart, Kristen Stewart's very good. And then you've got TJ Miller. So, you know, to to some extent, <laughs> there's good yeah. casting. Um, oh I, yeah, I, I he's cancelled, isn't he? He is, yeah. and yet oh, yeah. in this. I was, I was quite scared, but I am a scaredy cat, so you should obviously bear that in mind when considering that, that fact. Okay. Um, and I just find underwater movies generally quite effective. This is no The Abyss, it is not Hunt for Red October, it's not even Crimson Tide, um, but it's all right for a Friday night, to be honest. Mind you, that said, we give it two stars, which How? is no recommendation. How does it compare, Helen? This movie sounds a lot to me like Deep Star Six yeah. and Leviathan. And <sighs> yeah, it's, it's not unsimilar to some of those, but I just think there's some quite clever little twists on it, and they find a way to do lots of different monster movie tropes mm. in one film. Not always ma massively successfully, but it's quite impressive that they even managed to fit them in. All right. Two stars then for just Underwater. <laughs> Extraordinary stuff. Kristen Stewart brushing her teeth. <laughs> I'm just telling. It's like I'm five minutes at the beginning of the movie. All right. So now Helen is going to tell us uh, how Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn begins. Helen, does anyone brush their teeth in this movie? <laughs> Don't we remember how it begins? Oh no, the, there's a montage. Uh, this one. <laughs> is a tooth brushing montage. montage? Yeah. <laughs> well, even Harley Quinn brushes her teeth, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that no, big um, smile of hers. Yes, absolutely. I'm, oh. That what? really, I don't know, it just sounded really... That cool. wasn't a sex joke. <laughs> it sounded like it was, though. For once, Chris did not tell a sex joke. I feel okay. like gone full Joey Tribbiani here, like your grandma's chicken salad. That <laughs> <laughs> was a legitimate and very honest attempt to praise Margot Robbie's teeth. She is crazy. <laughs> she does. Uh, so this film starts with uh, Harley Quinn breaking up with the Joker, which leaves her vulnerable to basically the whole of Gotham's underworld, all of whom she's offended at one time or another by being, let's face it, Harley Quinn. So she has to try and find a new path and she basically gets sucked into the hunt for a pickpocket, Cassandra Kane. Yes, Cassandra Kane, LJ yes. Basco here. Um, and uh, No recognition whatsoever. <laughs> really? She's like Batgirl. Yeah. I am told that she is canonically 
Chloe, Batman's favourite member of the Bat family. Yeah, he likes her more than Robin, or his own son. So hang on, hang on. Hang on. <laughs> I get dissed for praising someone's teeth. You literally just said Batman's favourite member, and... <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. I went on to say of the fa- family. I stopped like, listening after that. I frankly, well. I had blacked out after that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that explains a lot. Anyway, so uh, she's looking for Cassandra Kane, a pickpocket who has stolen a thing. Um, so are <laughs> a singer called Diana, Diana Lance, who's played by Journey Smollett Smith, Smollett Bell, sorry, uh, and a detective Rene Montoya, who's played mm-hmm. by Rosie Perez. Yeah, and a bad guy. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's Mr. Um, J. It's Roman Sionis. Oh, it's him. Yes, yeah. that's right. Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. Yeah. And his henchman slash, I think possibly boyfriend, Mr. Zaz, who's Chris Messina. Um, so anyway, it's a lot of character establishment, even when I try to do a mm. plot summary. It's a lot in the film as well. And there's also the added complication that the director, Kathy Yan, goes with Harley, Harley's own weirdo view of the world and has her narrate her own story and she keeps leaving bits out and having to jump back and explain a bit more and then come back into where she left you so the first sort of third of this film can be quite confusing and you do need to kind of pay attention a little bit to figure out what's what and who's who um once you've done that though i thought it was really freaking fun i mean it's fun even during that part i think the action scenes in this are really well done um there's some stuff at the end that i haven't seen before and i'm like why has no one done an action scene in that place before that makes perfect sense i think visually this is stunning it's all kind of gold and fuchsia and blue it's really it's a really cool color palette it looks amazing the costumes are incredible oh. um and i liked all the characters i did genuinely i didn't know what you were talking about there i was going what place the place at the what? end you yeah know, no i yeah, get it now and it's a, it's tonally a little bit weird because you have some moments of real sadism but elsewhere a kind of poppy tone that would actually be quite friendly to younger viewers and and so I kind of almost wish they'd toned down the violence a little bit I don't want to sound uncool guys but hey I think you're absolutely right Um, and I would never normally say that but it's too violent and too sweary you figured. Uh, but it's weird because the marketing on this has been really odd because it feels like it's quite PG-13 child-friendly if you See, watch I the trailer. Yeah, like I it feels like that. But it's super violent. Like, super violent. Yeah, it is very violent. Like, more violent. How violent you think it is? It's more violent than that. Uh, and like, it's there's, there's some places. really nasty looking knee breaks. Like, just yeah. really. But also, like, there's a really there's a really unpleasant table dance sequence as well, which totally doesn't really fit with the rest of the film. And it's just horrible. And I think, so it's a film that has oh, loads no, of fun in I it. I think totally absolutely fits with the rest of the film. Mm, I don't think it does. And I, I found it, it made me really uncomfortable. And I'm yeah. like, this film is loads of fun. And then you've got stuff in it that's deeply unpleasant like people's faces being sliced off their heads it's it's like yeah (laughs) a lot like that but with less Nicolas Cage Um, yeah there there is that stuff but I think what's actually running through this film is um, essentially most pretty much all of the male characters are hypocritical and out only for themselves if not actively sexist um, I feel so seen and hostile (laughs) Um, and, and it is really it is really a case where these female characters need to work together to survive because essentially the patriarchy is out to get them so that may have rung truer with me mm. 
than maybe some other people. But no, I liked it. But See, like, I'm not saying good. you didn't like it. The only thing also is like another marketing issue. It's probably directed in the wrong place. But like, it's not a Birds of Prey film. They shouldn't pretend it's a, it's a Harley Quinn film. It is a Harley like, Quinn film. The Birds film, yeah. of Prey are at best supporting characters. Yeah, that's fair. Well, like, it is it is a Harley Quinn film with a little bit of Birds of Prey. They get quite a lot. I mean, like they get quite a lot of setup, but they don't come to. I don't think this is too big a spoiler. They don't come together as a team for a long time. And I think that yeah, that that does leave the. Mm. the main title feeling like a little bit of a mislead. Less fantabulous than advertising. But if this is the setup, <laughs> then I want to see these characters together again because I really like mm. them all. It's interesting because this is essentially a sequel to Suicide Squad. <laughs> four stars, Ooh. Empire. Yeah, which uh, Empire Magazine gave four stars to. Um, You're done. How's it going? Yeah. I was done. Was that before or after? I know I'm throwing stones in a glass house here, but was that before or after, Dan, you gave Independence Day Resurgence four stars? And my other question is, can I get any more of that crack you were on? I used it all up. Dan says he used it all up. Um, Suicide Squad's a fetid piece of poo, and (laughs) it's awful. And so this is much better than Suicide Squad, although, once again, we have to go back to, is this a very low bar to clear? (laughs) But it is. It's it's very much, it's very Deadpool-y, this movie. Uh, really, it yeah, feels like Deadpool 3. It does that winding time thing. Harley Quinn is much more a narrator. She maybe even breaks the fourth wall every now and again. Uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting in that sense. I'd have been happy with it actually just being a Harley Quinn character, because, a mm-hmm. Harley Quinn movie, because she's so great in the role. She's genuinely great in the role. This is one of those fantastic moments of just lightning in a bottle casting that you get in, the, in these movies. Obviously, Downey is Tony Stark and... And this as well, uh, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. She's fantastic. Um, and, you know, not a lot of Mr. J in this one either, Helen. You must have been delighted with that. It was lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting this movie's coming but people right... But do, people do throw knives at pictures of his face. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, which they, they got that idea from Helen, actually. Um, <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. my wall. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Uh, but it's interesting this movie follows hot in the heels of Joker because it's saying completely the opposite thing to Joker. Um, so good, good change in there. Well done, everybody. But uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with this. And um, we will discuss this on our spoiler special um, with the director, Kathy Yan, as well. But uh, yeah, that will be available at some point in the next couple of weeks. And yes, we gave this movie three stars, three fantabulous stars for Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. And no, I will never forget that title. Isn't it interesting that when that title came out, we all ripped the piss out of it on the podcast. And it's still probably objectively a terrible title, but you'll never forget it, right? Okay, so. Bring me the head of Alfredo. Bring me the fantabulous head of Alfredo Garcia. (laughs) The incredibly fantabulous people who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. To Wong Fu, thanks for something. Everything. Everything. Oh, I thought you were just inserting the word fantabulous into other movie titles. Yeah, okay. Uh, Right, that is it for the reviews section. And now it's time to bring this bad boy home with the news section. And uh, we can't have the news section without talking about news. So the Oscars are happening this weekend. Folks, mm-hmm. what do you think? What's going to happen? We've talked about this at great length in the podcast already, but what's your thinking? 
What's going to win? What's well, the is it going to... Because obviously we had the BAFTAs last weekend and 1917 had a pretty good time of that. Yeah. So do we think it'll repeat that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm hope. I'm still hoping for oh, Parasite. Oh, will Joker sweep the board, Helen? No. I'm hoping for Parasite, but I think... Um, I think 1917 feels like the very, and I don't mean this as an insult, but it feels like the safe bet. Yeah. And I think it I think so. is seen as such by voters. Um, if you see those obnoxious, uh, uh, you know, anonymous Oscar ballot pieces, which always reveal horrific things about the voters, even they s- essentially all say it's the safe choice. Mm. Um, so I think it's got to be the front runner. But I'm, I'm still hopeful that Parasite could pull off an upset. This year's one of those uh, sort of interviews with a, an anonymous Oscar voter was like more terrible than it any was so ever before. It came out, I think, on the Hollywood Reporter, and it was um, an unnamed actress saying, basically, I don't want 1917 to win because it's a British film, and I want an American film to win, and I don't like Parasite because it's not an American film. And it was like, whoa, it was horrific. Jesus. It was Make Oscars great again. Yeah, yeah. And, and she, but she was literally saying things like, I didn't buy Marriage Story because they lived in two nice an apartment and it's like I'm sorry if you were paying attention to the character's backstory it explains why they had money for the apartment you idiots oh my god she actually said the uh, the words foreign films should have their own categories uh, and, and leave the rest for the regular films like oh yeah alright Trump wow she was the worst what the hell um, yeah. So yeah, so the, the presence of people like that among the voters rather does want, cause one to lose faith in the entire system. Um, it really does make me wonder if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood could again be a safe bet that will please a lot of people in Hollywood because it's about Hollywood. But apparently there's been like a split so that all the uh, West Coast people like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood but the East Coast people and the overseas voters don't care mm. as much. Um, so they say, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but no, it, fe- it feels like a very safe year but then so did La La Land you know and that produced a delightful upset so I'm I'm kind of hoping for the same again fingers crossed (laughs) yeah it's 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 so sad now this time of year look there's no surprise at all right everyone knows what's gonna win but maybe maybe we're wrong you know hopefully (laughs) no I don't (sighs) think we are I, I don't think we are it's gonna be 1917 which I think timed its run to perfection, just like Salah! Um, but, you know, it came out very, very late in the race, and people love it, and it's going to win Best Picture, because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think, had been the favourite for a long time, then The Irishman superseded it briefly, and then along comes 1917. And, you, you know, the, the Oscar, and I think I've said this before, but the Oscar is literally for Best Achievement in Direction, and I don't know that anyone has yeah. achieved better direction this year than Sam Mendes. The man I, never gets lost. Okay. I think 1917's run was perfectly timed because they had to time it so that the shot ended. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, no one's going to begrudge Roger Deakins a second one because, let's oh, face it, you should have about 14. So yeah, he should. That's fine. He um, absolutely should. Sorry, the weirdest frontrunner to me is actually Jojo Rabbit. I did not see this being a really dominant frontrunner. It's won the WGA, it won the BAFTA. I did not see that being no. like the dominant force in the adapted screenplay category. It's weird to me. I'm not, again, not dissing it. it just, really? You went for the super weird Nazi comedy? Huh. <laughs> cool. <laughs> guess. Yeah. I, mean, I, was... I guess it's something that um, he, he took a book, Taika Waititi took a book that wasn't particularly Taika Waititi-ish and made a very Taika Waititi film out of it. But I don't know, like Greta Gerwig is right there. Greta Gerwig is she right took there. a book and she made also it took as Greta Gerwig as it could be. Right? Oh, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> <laughs> like the Joker. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, Joker might still sweep the board, Helen. There's still hope. Um, <laughs> best actor. That'd be a wind cell, am I right? Nice. Yes. Um, best actor is uh, going to be Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, belatedly, for you were never really here. Yes. And <laughs> best actress, I didn't see this coming, is going to be Renee Selbaker for Judy, in which she plays um, uh, Judy. Judy Garland. Judy Garland. Yes, She's yeah. going to be garlanded with an hey. Oscar come next week. So um, what, what, she won previously, right, for Cold Mountain? Uh, sure, yes. why not? Yeah. Somebody nodded, yes. Okay, so she's in the pantheon of two Oscar-winning ladies. Mm. Fair play. Mm. Um, no, she's very, very, very good in Judy. Like, mm. fair, fair play to her. And, and of course, she's playing a, f a figure that Hollywood is familiar with that is part of the town's lore that many voters are old enough to even remember. So, you know, it, it, that seems like a safe bet. It does seem safe. Did, did anybody watch the um, the BAFTAs at the weekend? Did you see the kind of crazy thing where uh, they had a few random performances during the show and one of them was a Cirque du Soleil performance to oh, Over so the Rainbow bizarre. and every couple of seconds it kept cutting back to a shot of Renee Zellweger just watching it like this. <laughs> like, she was in the film! She played Judy Garland. This is this. the Judy Garland yeah. thing. But the other thing that made it great was they kept cutting to Daisy Ridley, and every time it cut to Daisy Ridley, she looked more and more impressed. <laughs> it was amazing. At first, she had wide eyes and an open mouth. Then the hands were at the mouth. Then her eyes went wider than anybody could have thought. And then it cut to John Boyega, who spent the whole show. Every time it cut to John Boyega, he was sitting back in his chair, cool as anything. And when it cut back to him in the Cirque du Soleil thing, which is, was literally three guys chucking this woman around and catching her in all <laughs> yeah. sorts of crazy ways, he just did a small smirk, like... Yeah. <laughs> he knew he was seeing something good. The, the thing is, those guys were in the front row. Like, if they, if they let her go at the apogee of her arc, like, she was going to land right on them. I'm not surprised that Daisy Ridley looked alarmed. That's all I'm saying. Who had apogee on their uh, bingo card? <laughs> Anyone? Am I using Anyone? that right, physicists in the room? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was. Yeah. I think. I think it would have been a little bit nerve-wracking to be that close to mm. the state. And besides, when you've been in the scene with Babu Frick, it's very hard to be. Hey! Shirley Henderson, by the way, who voices Babu Frick, is in Greed, and she plays Steve Coogan's mother, and she's hilarious in it. Um, but that's uh, out February twenty-first. Anyway, so. Um, Best actor, best actress is going to be Renee Selbaker. Best supporting mm -hmm. actor is going to be Bradley Pitt. William Bradley Pitt. William Sorry, I'm getting that yes. wrong. And best supporting actress is going to be Helen. Laura Dern, I guess. Laura Dern. Seems okay, like. so it's all, you, know, you might as well not bother watching. And I can sense I, that none of you watched the BAFTAs. So I don't think anyone's going to be watching the Oscars either. But, uh, but here you go. Mm. Lump all your money on 11 Oscars for Joker. Uh, so. Um, <laughs> You'll know if Joker wins 11 Oscars because there'll be a mushroom cloud in <laughs> southeast London and it'll briefly form Helen's face and then it'll just. It'll be like melt in the away. mummy. Remember in the mummy where the mummy's face goes like. <laughs> <laughs> Arnold Foslu. Love that man. <laughs> what did you do that for? Just like banging my heart, man. Arnold, thinking of you, man. <laughs> I mean, you're technically not dead, but still thinking of you. Anyway, back on track. Professional host. Um, shall we talk about the superb owl, the Super Bowl, the thing that happened last week? And it came with it, lots of trailers, and one of those trailers was yeah. for some Disney plus Marvel Cinematic Universe content. Yeah. And Squee! Yeah. 
So it was a Falcon and the Squee Soldier. <laughs> it was right. it was Squee Vision, and of course Tom Hiddleston as Loke Squee. <laughs> so, very excited yeah. about those. Yeah, they looked they looked good. I mean, obviously they look good. They're Marvel characters. Um, they just it Sebastian just looked... Stan looks very attractive these days, doesn't he? Really, it? with the such hair a change and the for him. Face. I know, right? <laughs> Like so sudden, like he's always been like so plain. And it's now been like, suddenly, like it's very much Jane from Neighbours for me with Sebastian Stan, you know, you know, playing Jane, and she takes the glasses off, and then Guy Pierce is all like. Ben, Neighbours like was a soap opera. <laughs> I played on television. I watched Neighbours in the Margot Robbie years. <laughs> oh. So that then when she popped up in The Wolf of Wall Street, it was like, why is Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's wife Donna from Neighbours? What is going on? Yes, Ben, that's the only thing anyone was thinking about Margot Robbie <laughs> in that film. He's so innocent, it's so beautiful, and I know that we're going to corrupt him one day. <laughs> but it is, say, not no, that, day. it is not this day. Um, uh, but we, we, I, but I yes. hate patronizing Ben about the, his age, but uh, Guy Pierce is an actor <laughs> who was in Neighbors for a Bed and then did some movies. Mm. Cool. Anyway, so uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier looks good. Uh, How does been... he throw the shield? He can, it's the sh- I'm keep telling you the shield is not that heavy. Like I feel like vibranium is like mithril, like it's quite light. <laughs> you know. And but I'm if... the nerdy one on this <laughs> But Helen, if, if you will, if you go with me in this one, uh, the apogee of his arm. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam is flinging. He doesn't have Steve Rogers' super soldier serum no, like... flowing through his veins. All I'm saying is, old Steve is still around no, in this universe. No, you're not. All I'm saying is a blood transfusion. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's not all he's saying. Um, no, I think, I think what we have to assume is Sam is like Batman in this case, and he's like as trained as a human person can be, and he's very good at stuff. And that's why he's able to do some Captain America. What an impressive things. CV that is. <laughs> <laughs> Flying, throwing shield, very good at stuff. stuff. I'm like you wouldn't hire him. I, I, I hire him in a heartbeat. Obviously. Absolutely. Um, um, but yeah. yeah, that looks good. Uh, good. One Division looks. One Division looks great. Yeah. It looks, looks like they're doing full kind of. Mm. So in the comics, as you know, leading up to House of M, basically Wanda lost her children and her mind and brought them back to life. Right? Am I remembering that right? Um, so. So, so basically, the whole universe had to kind of like tell her, "Hang on, this isn't cool. You know, get a grip." Um, <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, and anyway, it all kind of escalated, and things got a bit out of hand, and she wiped almost all mutants off the map, eventually. Um, but I feel like they're getting into a bit of that. She's clearly, you know, retreating into herself, and her reality powers mean that she can retreat into herself a little bit more effectively than most. And she, her inner self, appears to be at least at some points, a 50s sitcom, which I'm super here for. I think it's yeah. going to be really, really good fun. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And Loki, we only saw that one shot of Tom Hiddleston saying, What's I'm going to burn the world down mm. or something like that, because this is evil Loki, not the good Loki that we saw, mm-hmm. you know, being joked by Thanos. And, and, I, it's, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like Tom Hiddleston says it and everybody's like, cool, yeah. great, <laughs> can't wait, man, Absolutely. love you. Absolutely. As, uh, as Amon Warman would say, would watch. <laughs> Amon, I stole your catchphrase, man. <laughs> Um, One very, very quick trailer to talk about as well is the Fast 9 trailer. (laughs) Yes! Anyone see the Fast 9 trailer? I mean, let's face it, it's better than the BAFTAs. Um, (laughs) 
F9, the fast saga, is what this is called. And it... I still think there's a war at the heart of the fast saga, as we are now duty-bound to call it, between the people who really get the joke and Vin Diesel. <laughs> but yeah. I, I'm hopeful it will still result in a film that will melt my eyeballs. Uh, but can I... Oh, I don't want to... Say, everyone's seen it, right? Everyone's seen the trailer? Yeah. Okay. I have a big bone to pick with the fact that they have revealed the return yeah. of the greatest character <laughs> in the Fast Saga, mm-hmm. Han Solo. <laughs> Last seen being killed, although kind of off screen, oh, by the States, Deckard Shaw, <laughs> then called Ian Shaw, at the end of Fast Six. And I just think this is a pretty big one to drop. Yeah. You save it for the movie, right? I mean, well, but I mean, we still don't know why on earth anything is happening. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. There's that mystery still to be addressed. Um, and, I'm, and look, I'm not sure anyone knows. This, on is, the a, film. this is a trailer <laughs> in which a car swings across a canyon on a rope, and that's the most unbelievable thing. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't say that. He said that. I didn't say it's unbelievable. I just don't. I save it for the movie. That's a huge reveal. That's it like is. literally the Empire Strikes Back trailer having "I Am Your Father" in the trailer. Maybe it isn't. Maybe this is like first act shit. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe I mean, he walks in the opening scene. When it happened in the trailer, I may have physically screamed. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a good job they put it in the trailer, and it wasn't me on opening night sitting there watching F9: The Fast Saga, <laughs> screaming. Although everything else in that trailer also made me scream. John Cena is Vin Diesel's secret brother. What the fuck? Two words. It's the line from Michelle Rodriguez. Jason is Dom's Dom's brother. brother. It's so days of our lives. I can't think I'm having it. I mean, right, so maybe like, okay, but I mean, he's already got a sister who doesn't look anything like him. So maybe the family is just a, a real... Family. It's all about family, Helen. It is all about family, but maybe it's not necessarily about a family of the same exact heritage. The way they keep making it about family is the the best thing. No one cares. No one cares. It was like Vin Diesel is evil. Why is he turned against the family? Because of the family, because he's got a son. And now this time it's like, oh, he's got a son, so he's got even more family. But you know what's going to cause him some trouble this time? (laughs) His family! Yes! Are the Toretto's like gremlins? If you get them wet, do they just... (laughs) So maybe someone fed John Cena after midnight and he's turned evil and it's all gone horribly wrong. I think Vin Diesel's secret is he's always wet. Is that wow. saying? Well, <laughs> I think this day has arrived, everybody. I think we finally corrupted Ben Travis. Don't applaud that. Oh. All right. Yeah. Um, and we haven't even mentioned the magnet plane. The magnet, the magnet plane. plane. Oh my god. I wanted to say on Friday night, I think uh, Team Empire was going about their business, uh, doing minding their own business, and then the uh, Team Empire WhatsApp lit up with a succession of messages from Ben Travis. I I'm paused the Taylor those. Swift documentary on Netflix <laughs> yeah. for this urgent event. So there I was watching something probably Blue Bloods, who knows, and oh my fucking god. <laughs> The Fast and Furious 9 trailer is four minutes long and an absolute work of art. My jaw dropped for ridiculous reasons many, many, many times. A drone plane catches a car in midair. And then there's a couple of, uh, just simply, he simply says, magnet plane. (laughs) 
And this is before any of us have seen the trailer, so thanks a bunch, Ben. You were an even worse spoiler than the uh, reveal of Han Solo. You know, I mean, the thing about Han is, is really upsetting is it undoes that great villain intro. I mean, it continues to undo that great villain intro of Deckard Shaw. Ian Shaw. <laughs> Ian Shaw. At the end of Fast 6 and beginning of Fast 7, which is, was one of my favourite things. I just thought it was so ridiculously and over the top as this franchise tends to be and it's just all been undone but it now. retcons the canon of Tokyo Drift I mean for fuck's sake can you imagine that's if we so get, upsetting we're going to get a third version of this scene what if Lucas Black comes back and he's like 50 years old now and it's never referenced because it's all taking place in this crazy timeline I love that timeline. flashback scene of him which one's in which one's he turn up in uh, seven. he turns up seven. Seven. Yeah. Seven. when it's, it's like seven. when it's seven. a redo of that scene and he's visibly a decade older yeah. <laughs> Look at his he's he's as well. I oh didn't recognise him. He's so old you can't tell it's him. <laughs> he's the old man at the end. I remember Dom Toretto. <laughs> that guy lived his life a quarter of a mile at a time. All right, old Steve. Oh, no, I apologise, Matty. Oh, I remember Dom. <laughs> Just hook that film up to my veins in one arm and in the other arm, hook up a bottle of Corona. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That, just, yes. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I don't think that's viable or wise. I don't know if there are any doctors in the house, but maybe you can tell us if it's wise to inject Corona and the Fast franchise into your brain. You tell that to the people who designed the physics for the Fast franchise. That's true. They would probably have a different answer. Um, let's talk about Chris Pratt. But let's talk about the other thing as well. What other thing? The, the fact that I no longer have to get tickets to see Hamilton. I mean, you do. Okay, let's talk about that. So, uh, we now have it, we talked about it at length last week, we now have a date, the original Broadway film of Hamilton is going to be released on October 15th, 2021. Start your countdown, ladies and gentlemen, especially her in the Hamilton t-shirt back there. <laughs> this is your shot. Yes, do not throw it away. Um, this, is, this is great news. All of you get to experience a small fraction of what I experienced when I saw it live. You wanted to talk about it, James? No, that was it. You've done it. I just wanted to tee you up. I thought you would be unhappy if you had not been able oh, to share okay. that. Well, that's good stuff. What's weird about this is actually, have you heard that Disney paid $75 million for the privilege? Which is roughly what the tickets cost on Ticketmaster. Exactly. <laughs> So I guess they figured eh, it'll be cheaper. Um, but yes, 75 million is the f figure being bandied about. So um, maybe they're hoping that this kind of softens everybody up and they give them the rights to make the movie eventually. Um, but that's a heck of a lot of money for a kind of essentially a concert movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that'll be interesting. Let's talk about Chris Pratt. Sure, go for it, Helen. Oh, why do I have to do everything? So Chris Pratt um, obviously you know, had a very successful career on TV before he ruined it all by going and making movies. And um, he- Did you ever watch Everwood? No. Yes? That's where I was first introduced to Chris Pratt, Everwood. Well, I mean, he is officially Andy Dwyer and everything else is kind of trash. But, sure. Um, but he is coming back to TV with uh, Antoine Fuqua, the director of Magnificent Seven, Training Day, etc. And they're making a new drama called The Terminal List, which feels like people took two words out of the hat <laughs> that said vaguely actiony things on it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this will be uh, adapted from a bestseller I haven't read. It's a conspiracy thriller that apparently combines elevated action with deep mm. psychological questions about the cost of pushing our nations, that would be the US, highest trained operators too far. That sounds good. I'll be sure to talk about it on the Pilot TV podcast. Oh, good Lord. If you had that on your bingo card, well done. Um, please don't, please don't talk about it. Um, but yes, uh, so Doolittle is a film starring... 
Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, we've, we've done, done a bit. We've, we've done, done a bit. bit. Okay. Uh, should we talk about? Oh, hey! I tell you what. There was. Um, I, I got very excited about this in the week. Did you see this? That Kittredge is returning to Mission Impossible. Yeah. Yes. It's exciting, isn't it, guys? Henry Cherney, Cerny. I don't know how to pronounce his surname. I've never him. known that. But him, the guy who played Kittredge in the first Mission Impossible movie, who was the, uh, the, the fly in the ointment. The monkey the in the wrench. The in the works, the monkey in the wrench. Was it uh, Kittredge? Um, he's, uh, maybe, uh, maybe he will finally see Ethan Hunt upset in Mission Impossible 7. I'm very excited about this, and I've long wanted to see Kittredge return to the Mission Impossible franchise. But hey, listen, you know, the, the thing is, the thing is, I'm not sure I can tell you what Kittredge is doing in Mission Impossible 7. Luckily, I know a man who can. Will you please welcome the writer and director of Mission Impossible 7 and 8, Christopher McQuarrie! I hope none of you have trains to catch. This podcast is now going to be seven hours long. I was about to say, I hope you've all brought a meal, <laughs> change of clothes, because this is it. Yeah. This is happening. This is this part is three it. of the Fallout podcast. <laughs> this is it. So, yes. yeah, actually, <laughs> while we're here, um, the book that Ethan has given at the beginning of Fallout... What's the significance of that book? I'm going to read you the entire book now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please do. Uh, what's the significance of, yeah. the, of the Odyssey? Yeah. Uh, it was suggested by Mark Bristol, my storyboard artist who I've been working with all the way back to my first film. And uh, as he saw, it, it, these movies are not really defined at the beginning. We just have kind of a blob of an idea. <laughs> and Mark, could, Mark is the one who could see that this was getting bigger than previous movies, and he was feeling something of an odyssey, and that was his suggestion. Oh, okay. Interesting. Fairly Could have just as easily been Moby Dick. And then, <laughs> and then people would be the looking at messages and that as well. Yep. But, uh, so uh, thank you so much for coming in. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you want to say where you were, but, uh, but, but Chris actually was not in this country today. So he has hot-footed it straight from Heathrow Airport to come here. And we're very, very grateful for that. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I mean, we couldn't have a landmark podcast without you here. And you're about to start filming, so you're going to be away for a little bit. Yes, uh, we start filming soon. <laughs> I, I'm going to be very cryptic for a lot of this podcast. I will try to be as specific as I possibly can, but uh, yes. Okay. So how's it going? How's it going? Uh, it's a blob. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the best blob we've had. Uh, I'm actually very excited about it. And... Uh, I think it's probably, we, we, over the course of many movies that Tom and I have done together, our process has evolved and we've, we've learned to trust the process, not try to control the process. And you, you and I have talked about mm -hmm. this before, mm -hmm. you, you, you do what mission wants and, uh, and when, and you resist that at your peril. And this was the first time where we really had the, the, the comfort and the support and probably the exhaustion, because we were still working on Top Gun, to just not worry so much about where it was going and just go where it wanted to go. Uh, and I figured out the story about four weeks ago. Hey. 
Um, and but what happens is that over the course of a year, while you are developing story uh, arcs for the characters, we, oh, oh, what we focused on was the emotional story arcs of the characters and and action scenes that we were thinking about doing and scouting all over the world and you're moving resources around. I really only need to know what the, the gear is when we get there. It's less about, I, I'm concerned less about what the characters are going to say than what they're wearing and what they're driving and, mm-hmm. uh, and making sure that they don't drive into each other unintentionally. Um, <laughs> and so uh, about a month ago, I, I moved one essential piece of the puzzle, which after you've seen the movie, we'll talk about it in mm-hmm. detail, this mm-hmm. will be. And I moved this one essential piece of the puzzle and suddenly, I was able to outline the entire movie in eight minutes. I just sat down and went, oh, okay, this would go to here. And, oh, my God. It's like when you put that one word in the crossword puzzle and it all falls together. Mm, yeah. And the great thing about this process is it's like coming up with an idea for a movie and going, hey, I've got this credit. Where'd all this stuff come from? <laughs> and everything is there. You have all the cities that you want to go to and all the gear has been built and suddenly it all makes sense. Uh, that's kind of the best way I can describe this process. So every, every few days I will call up Tom wherever he is in the world working on Top Gun and, and training and say, I've got this great idea for, you remember the thing I told you about last time? Yes, that's not in the movie anymore, but it's a better <laughs> idea. Uh, and so now we're, 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 it's less of a blob. So you must be at peace enough with this process to come back, not just for one movie, but for two. Um, it, peace is not the word. It's profound and committed denial. Um, <laughs> we, this, this one, I, there, there are days, if you think about it, you will have the most outrageous panic attack imaginable. And Tommy Gormley, our amazing, amazing uh, AD, who's been on this franchise since Mission 3, uh, likes to say, how do, you eat an, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. <laughs> and so all I'm focused on is day one, week one, location one. Uh, and then, and I know that beyond that, there are, there are things that are farther and farther away that must be dealt with soon, but mm-hmm. not immediately. Okay. And then at the, we, were, we were all sitting in some far-flung part of the world and we took an inventory of everything we were doing and we've learned that every movement of a Mission Impossible movie is about 20 minutes long. The Burj Khalifa is 20 minutes. The opera is 20 minutes. Uh, the CIA sequence in Langley is 20 minutes. So this time when I sat down, I, I said, look, we're going to make six 20-minute movies. Let's not kid ourselves. That's what these movies are. And, and you develop a sense for what fits in those 20-minute mm-hmm. chunks. And, and, it, uh, and so... Now what we do is we'll start to look at a scene and go, man, we're starting to bleed into the next 20 minutes. How do you, how do you fold that in? How do you make that more, more compact? And everything becomes much more manageable when you're making a 20-minute movie as opposed to two two-hour movies. Yeah. And we were all sitting down working on this very big sequence that ends the first movie. Now I'm having a panic attack. Think about this. <laughs> uh, this very big sequence that ends the first movie, and we started taking account of everything we were planning to do. And for the first time, and this is, I'm not kidding, it's a week ago that we started to say, all right, why don't we start thinking fiscally and responsibly about how we're actually gonna make this movie? And I realized that there were, there were too many 20-minute chunks in our movie, and we had a, a choice to make. Are we gonna make another fallout or 
not and what would happen if we took one or two of these things out. And when we did that, it radically altered the process yet again. And suddenly two 20-minute chunks came out of the movie and moved into the next movie, mm -hmm. which I haven't even started thinking about yet. <laughs> and I went, the second movie's halfway done. <laughs> this is great, I don't have to worry about that now. Take the week off, everybody. Yes, everybody take the week off. Uh, so now, that, that immediately defined what the end of the first movie was. People have been asking me, are these two movies connected? Is it, is it one movie? Does it end on a cliffhanger? I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> I've been trying to figure that out. We, we were having a laugh. Yeah. Online the other night, there was, a, there was an article online that's, you know, Haley Atwell's character revealed. And they had some old casting thing that we sent out. And I was laughing because I don't know what she's doing in the movie. <laughs> and you think you know what she's doing. What happens is when, we, when we're hiring actors, the agents and the casting directors all need character descriptions. So we just make up character descriptions. And all the names in the character descriptions, we just went, go to the old show and just pull some names off the old. So the names, no one has picked up on this, that all the names in the show were all pe people from the, from the original TV show. Yeah, we're, we're, so we're just now figuring out what basic elements of those things are. But like with Vanessa Kirby's character, we didn't know who the White Widow was until her first day of shooting. We never worked with her before. so. I, I'm, I'm not interested in getting Vanessa Kirby to play a character that I've created for Vanessa Kirby. I'm interested in creating a character for her based on things she's never done, aside of her, of her as an actor that we've never seen before. And so uh, that's, that's the fun stuff of making a Mission Impossible is I don't, I don't really know who Haley is. I could tell you who I think she is. <laughs> we don't know her name. We haven't figured that out yet. Uh, and for all I know, she may never have one. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? No, no, I know, I know you're not. Yeah. I know you're not. Might be news to her, though. <laughs> yeah. um, you've also got this, uh, you, you cast likes Nicholas Holt. Yes. Who's also fantastic. Uh, yes. And this week, Kittredge. Yes. Uh, we've been, well, I've been thinking about Kittredge for going all the way back to, uh, going all the way back to Rogue Nation. And... I'm asked all the time, can you bring back Maggie Q? Can you bring back Paula Patton? Can you bring back the guy who got sent to the North Pole? Like, they, <laughs> they really love that guy. They want to say, somebody keeps asking me, can I bring back the conductor from the train at the end of Mission <laughs> That's David like, Schneider. He's, you, uh, yeah. And are we, are we really, is, are we really dying to know what happened to that guy? Um, and so they're always asking me to bring these characters back and my answer is always the same. If I come up with something good for them, I'm not, I'm not interested in bringing a character back to go, and we have Paula Patton. Um, I'm much more interested in uh, finding something great for that character to do. You and I have talked about fan service a lot, and I could get in a lot of trouble talking about it again. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just not something that interests me for its, for its own sake. And so how we do something like that is early in this process, I had an inkling that there could be a place for Kittredge. The shape of the movie, the tone of the movie was taking on something that lent itself to that. And so we call and check on his availability and it's a, it's a delicate dance of saying, you might be in Mission Impossible, but we don't know and we just wanna know if you're interested in being in Mission Impossible and if you are, we're only gonna call if we come up with something great, but here's the process. 
and they were very lovely about it. And um, and there's a few actors that we have been talking to, saying we want you to be in this movie. We don't know if it's the first movie, the second movie, both movies. We don't even know if those movies connect yet. And they're they nod and look very confused while you tell them that. Um, it makes for awkward lunches. Uh, and then finally, when I had that click a month ago, I realized Kittrich, he's got to be right in the scene. And, um, and, and I had written the scene not knowing who was in it. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly Kittrich came into it and the scene was, the, the scene was transformed. It was really fun. So I got to call Henry Cerny and say, you're in, we, will you be in it? <laughs> <laughs> and he was great about it. He was lovely. He's very excited to be in it. And he wasn't like, finally, for God's sake, it's been, yeah. been years. Well, it's, it's my understanding, and this could be apocryphal. I don't dig too deeply into it. It's my understanding they wanted him in Mission 2, but he, he wasn't really interested in doing a sequel at that point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think it just it it didn't it didn't all come together. Although seeing the finished product of Mission Two, I can't imagine what Kittrich would have done in it. Mm. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah. you, Kittrich needs to be. Kittrich is a meddler. He's mm. not just a guy who comes in and tells Ethan what he's doing. He's mm. a he's a force, and you have to use him that way. And we've we've found a really delightful way to apply him. So. Uh, I'm very excited about that. I'm excited about it as well. And uh, this is our 400th podcast. It's a it's a landmark show. It's a landmark episode. Do you are you a sentimental man? Do you look back? How do you celebrate landmarks of of things like winning the Oscar and and whatnot? Uh, I don't. Um, it just really. goes by. Yeah, I do. Um, it, it's I'm it, for me. It's kind of about moving forward. And what did you learn? How do you grow? I think I dwell more on horrible mistakes and embarrassments than I do on... Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> You're an honorary Sounds like there's a lot of people in this room <laughs> who do the same thing. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, somebody just told me that this is the 25th anniversary of The Usual Suspects this year, mm-hmm. uh, which I had not even stopped to contemplate. They asked if I would come to a screening of that, and uh, and I, I just can't. I'm unavailable to do it, and I couldn't be happier that I'm too busy to do that. <laughs> um, you know, I, look, I'm, pr- I'm proud of all those things. I'm just, I, I got to say, with everything that's transpired since, just since you and I last spoke, the, mm. the things that I've learned and, and what, what we've learned on Top Gun, which, by the way, I cannot wait for you people to see this movie. And it's, I'm so excited about this movie, I can't tell you. And you know I don't get excited about anything. I'm <laughs> very excited about Top Gun. Heart, heartbeat um, is always steady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're all going to enjoy the movie. And I, I, I'm very conservative, so I wouldn't normally say something like that. Um, the, the stuff that we have learned along the way and apply to the next thing is, I, so I look back at, at suspects as kind of a as kind of a lucky break. I came up with the end of a movie, which prevented me from making horrible mistakes. The movie was the was kind of the, the ending of the movie was the the anchor that disciplined that thing. Everything up to that point has since that point rather has been kind of figuring out how did I do that um, and and getting back to that place. And that's that's where I think we're we're approaching now we've we've come to a place where it's it's a it's a lot more about emotion it's not about spectacle and uh and and simplicity elegance trying to make a silent movie that's that's really what we're all about uh so i don't think about that stuff (laughs) (laughs) you you mentioned tom cruise training but i i feel like he can already do all of the things (laughs) i can only tell you uh everything that he's doing 
He is not going to space. Aww. I just want to. I just because if I le- if I don't button that up, I will be answering questions about it for the rest of my life. He's not going to space. Uh, nor does he need to go to space. I know everybody's thinking it's what's beyond the plenty, and, <laughs> and we've figured out three obscene things that, uh, that that he's doing that I'm terrified of that make the helicopter chase look like Tinker Toys and. Uh, yeah, and and of course, yes. And then he's training and doing, and he calls me and describes what he's doing, and I, I, I laugh and I cheer and I hang up and I puke into a bucket. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's tra- he is he's training quite quite intensely right now and having too much fun doing it. You nearly broke him last time. Don't break um, him this time. I did not break him. I <laughs> he just the wall broke him. I just <laughs> I just threw him at the wall. <laughs> throw him at the wall. I directed him into the wall. <laughs> All right, I broke. I broke. <laughs> I'm sorry. And have you been working on anything else in between missions before you took the, before you accepted this mission? Um, uh, ju- uh, just Top Gun. I mean, it, Top yeah. Gun has been a, uh, uh, that's been an amazing experience and is, and is ongoing. There's, uh, you, you, I've never seen a team work harder, take it more seriously. Everybody understands that what they're doing is they're, you're not just making a sequel to a movie, you're making a sequel to a 35-year-old iconic moment in cinema, and every day you're, you're not allowed to forget that. And the process has been one of uh, not, trying to, not trying to let that freak you out, and it's similar to what we're doing now, it's kind of, and, and the process has been one of, of things we thought the movie needed to be, and every day we let go of the things we thought the movie needed to be, it becomes something more of its own. And it's, it's, it very much is uh, its own story. The cast is amazing, all these actors, and what they've all done in terms of the, the physicality of it, and what they've done with the jets. I went in one of these planes, and I'll tell you, it's punishing on a level you can't understand. I threw up twice. And, <laughs> Uh, and which is not cool to do with a beard in a plane. It's just, <laughs> there's no cool way to throw up in a plane. Um, I tried, it didn't work, don't do it. Uh, but, the, but again, the, the, the extreme G-forces that they're experiencing, all of that stuff that they're going through is incredibly rigorous and they all did it and they, they really committed to it in a way that, um, that, that blew me away. And, uh, and, and, what, and it, it was like Tom and I were this where this kind of, you know, I came into the process late, so they had been working on the movie, and then Tom and I came in, and we have our weird mind meld, which we then started bringing people into, and and that changed that again. So you have Joe Kaczynski and his, his style and his aesthetic, which then merges with the other, uh, and, and you'll see when you see the movie. I mean, that, the stuff you're seeing in the trailers, I'm really excited to say is, it isn't bullshit where you go, ah, all the good stuff's in the trailer. It's movie's really good. He's done, he's done an extraordinary, extraordinary job. I've really loved not being responsible for that movie. <laughs> and just getting to be there participating in it as opposed to, you know, I don't envy Joe. That's, that's a big thing to put your name on. And he's, uh, he's done an incredible job. 
Do you find that over the years that you've known Tom that his daredevilness rubs off on you a little bit? I mean, you've been in this plane now for Top Gun Maverick, but does he does he call him and go, "Hey, McHugh, I'm going to strap myself to the side of a plane. Let's go, let's go." Let, let me be clear. I did not have a choice about going in the plane. I got a call and said, "There's a plane coming to get you. You're flying to Tahoe, and you're flying with the Blue Angels tomorrow." <laughs> and I said, "What?" And he said, "You got to understand this stuff." <laughs> so. I didn't ask to go. I just, that, that was part of, that was like, you know, you, we, we all have some, you know, it was, some of us have to take the garbage out. Some of us have to wash the dishes. <laughs> I had to go fly in an F-18. Uh, and it was fun, but it was also, I had to, I had to do the, you know, the not fun version of flying in one of those to understand what it was because I was writing about it. I wouldn't say, though, that Tom is a daredevil. I mean, what we're doing now is definitely... Uh, riding the edge of trusting everything we know and knowing what needs to be figured out and doesn't. And that feels a little bit like being a daredevil. Mm. But it's actually the only way to do it. It's, it's the only way to do it in a way that, that it's honest and it's organic and, and you don't get in your own way. And the schedule is such that we can't afford the delay we had on Rogue. We can't afford the delay we had on, on Fallout. We have to hit a bullet with a bullet and we have to hit it two times. The only way to do that is to be, your, it's that scene in Apocalypse Now. It's like, don't look at the camera. Just go on like you're fighting. Just just don't think about the movie. And Tom, it's, 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 it's to be said, it all appears very much daredevil and it appears, uh, you know, adrenaline junkie. Uh, he does it for your entertainment. I mean, that's really what it's all about. He, 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 he can do something that nobody else can or would. Uh, if, if an actor wanted to be Tom tomorrow, they'd have to be nine today, four today, and start training to be Tom. You're looking at a lifestyle, a, 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 not a lifestyle, a lifelong commitment to driving and training and, and acrobatics and, and stunt performing and acting and studying film and all. It's a, he's a, he's a one-man industry and he squeezes every last bit of that out of, out of life. I, I got another phone call and I, which happened during this whole thing saying, okay, what are your, your, I need you to clear your calendar for Wednesday and Thursday of this, of this coming week. And I said, why? And he goes, you're jumping out of an airplane. I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. And now I have pictures of me jumping out of an airplane. Um, and that's, but it, but it is, again, it's a, um, it's not this daredevil thing. It's like, here's, here's the, here are the things we're talking about down the road. Here's what you need to do to understand that technology so you can be a better filmmaker as you're doing it. And that's, and then I'm falling out of an airplane. <laughs> Does it help? Does it help uh, puking into your beard at 60,000 feet? Does yeah, that yeah, I gotta tell you, I mean, I had to write about a sequence. There's a, there's a sequence in Top Gun where you, you, you have to educate the audience. You've gotta, there are things that the actors are experiencing that you can't feel, you're watching people feel it. And if you don't understand what's happening to them, it actually seems quite weird because they're flying in planes, but essentially, you know, if you weigh a, a 150 pounds and you're pulling seven and a half Gs, your body weighs seven and a half times its weight. It crushes your skull, it compresses your spine, it forces, you, you just, you physically can't move. And if you don't do this one particular maneuver, you'll black out almost instantly. And you, the, and 
and then you'll wake up a little while later just not if you just come to and it's like no big deal um but so when you see people doing it if you don't understand those physics you're like what's wrong with that person and so i had to find an artful way to educate the audience to help them understand what the experience was and so the only way for me to do that was to go and do it and you're about to go and do it again. And uh, yeah. I wish you all the best, sir. <laughs> I hope that Kittredge is everything I have dreamed of. <laughs> he is for sure. For sure. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be amazing. Um, we are being wrapped up. So I will say thank you so much for coming so far. Christopher McQuarrie, everybody. Thank you, everybody. And uh, that is it for episode 400 of the Empire Podcast. It has been a, a belter, honestly, and uh, I can't wait for the next 400, unless, oh, of course, I leave and become hugely successful elsewhere. <laughs> Never. No, Never. not going to happen. Um, Few thanks, of course. Thank you uh, to Zoe, Sally, Becca, Alex backstage, Giuseppe on the sound desk, and Harrison as well, who's been handling all the stuff here. You guys have been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you for your patience, guys, as well. I know we're pushing the uh, curfew here. I uh, don't want to be like Springsteen, but they just unplug us. Uh, thank you to our spot prize donors, Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, Criterion Collection, Last Exit to Nowhere, uh, Mr. Jones, which is out on DVD uh, very, very soon. And of course, um, the main contributor, which was just our office floor and the shit lying around on it uh, as well. Thank you to our incredible guests, Steve Coogan, Michael Winterbottom. Emily Beecham, Todd Haynes, this guy, and of course, say this every single time we do a live show, but I really, really mean it. Thank you so much to you guys. We are 400 episodes in, and without your support, we wouldn't have got 40 episodes in. So it really, really means a lot to us. And I hope that this, this major trip from Australia yeah, someone flew in from Australia for this. Yes. Oh my God! You're Where are you? Thank you so much. Uh, and not to be outdone, South Africa over here somewhere. Where are they gone? Diplomatic immunity, you motherfuckers. They had to but fly Australia home. stayed. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. Thank you so much for coming, and everybody. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by holy shit, Chris. Emilio Estevez, can you bring him back? <laughs> I mean, he was last seen interfacing with a lift. At, That's a tricky one. Yeah, it's tricky. tricky. I'm not Nothing. gonna say it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is impossible. Uh, but until then, until we meet again, until a auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Ben Travis. Goodbye. Goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to start prepping for the Mission Impossible 7 spoiler special on a volcano. I think this one, Chris, is that last uh, one? Three yeah. months on a volcano. Three months on a volcano. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming. See you next time. Goodbye. Woo!